Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 11th, 2015, and this is episode 1642 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. So we do have the Expert Council Q&A, the Monster Show of the Week, where I bring to you guys uh, 14 of the most premier experts in the... Wait a minute, 14? 14? I thought it was 13. 13's an unlucky number. I can't have 13, so I decided to add a new one. You want to guess who it is? Someone we should have added a long time ago, but we had to work out exactly how we would handle it. And uh, a recent guest, and commented on by several of you guys, is one of the best guests ever. Doc Bones is now officially a member of the Expert Council for all your medical first aid questions, etc., He has a great one for you today. Uh, most of the other expert council members are here. I think we have two pikers this week uh, and one definite piker. One piker and one piker, half piker, we would say, this week. Uh, but two folks are not in attendance this week. You can figure out who they are as we go through. Keep your questions coming in for everybody. Make sure when you send me a question for the expert council, you do the following. TSP expert in the subject line. TSP Uh, I'm sorry, TSPC expert in the subject line. TSPC expert in the subject line. Give me your question, and then give me your details after your question, and tell me who the question is for. Um, it will really be more likely that it'll, I'll find it when I'm doing the questions up every Monday to send them off to expert council members, if you put a council member's name in there. If you're not sure who all the council members are, uh, you can go to Meet the Expert uh, Council Members page on the survivalpodcast.com. There'll be a link in today's show notes, episode 1642, to do just that. We've got experts in just about everything and anything you can think of. And I've got a bunch of great stuff queued up for you today. Before we go into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by supporting the show to help make sure that it's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is, maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it. But you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at Fortress Defense 
Com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go at ReadyMadeResources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it. From the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between, you'll find it at Ready-Made Resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case? They've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast, Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode of the year, 1642. Because, well, the episode is 1642. Alex Shrugged has three queued up for us today. The first one is Arsenic as a Medical Cure. The second is The Battle for China and the Rise of the Sweet Potato. And the last one is The King Declares War Against His Own Government. Uh, I'm going to read Arsenic as a Medical Cure because, once again, I have a totally different take than Alex does. And I, I like that when we have different takes because then we realize that we can learn more from history than what the, the, you know, the history book says we're supposed to learn. First one up today, again, Arsenic as a Medical Cure. To be, cure, to be clear... Arsenic is a deadly poison. It is the poison of choice for kings, meaning that it's the poison most used on kings and other noblemen. Arsenic is rarely found in its elemental form, but by 1649, John Schroeder will publish two methods for extracting elemental arsenic from other compounds. This year, arsenic is used for the first time as a medical treatment. Exactly what they are treating is unclear, but before antibiotics are discovered in the 20th century, arsenic will be one of the few cures for syphilis, the other cure being malaria. Apparently, if you make yourself so sick that you're about to die, the syphilis expires shortly before you do, then hopefully you can recover. Don't bet on it, though. My take by Alex Shrugged. Uh, some poisons do have medical purposes. Botox is a toxin. When it is injected into a muscle, it can reduce spasms. Supposedly, it prevents wrinkles. Extracts of the belladonna plant, that is deadly nightshade, have been used by women to make their pupils larger, thus prettier. Ophthalmologists have used it for dilating the eyes, but nowadays there are more reliable methods. In Victorian times, women would eat a concoction of arsenic and chalk to improve their complexion. I shudder to think of how many women over the centuries have sacrificed themselves on the altar of vanity. Please don't mess with these poisons. I really don't want you to die, not even for beauty. Um, my take... Um, We, when we look back and we see the, you know, the ancients, as it were, the Middle Ages here, using uh, arsenic as a drug, as a, as a cure, as a treatment, it seems very primitive because it's a poison. Well, 
Um, as I mentioned before, there was a time when I actually looked at going into uh, natural health medicine. That was something that I actually took some courses in and was, was, headed, was headed down that path before I decided it really wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, but I did gain a lot from those courses. And one of the things that struck me was in one of the books that was part of the course, I read the following words, every drug is a deadly poison. Every drug is a deadly poison. And you, you, you want to challenge that at first, but then as soon as you apply the least bit of critical thinking to it, you think, is there any drug out there that if I took an entire bottle of it and ate it, wouldn't kill me? And then people will say, oh, come on, you can say that about a lot of things. Yeah, when they're poison. I mean, you can eat corn until you can't move and it's not going to kill you. It might make you have a bad day the next day on the pot or something, but it's not going to kill you. It, Every single drug is a refined product. It's a concentrated product. It has a concentrated effect. And every drug that we use in medicine is a toxin. And the balance is using the toxin sufficiently to have an adverse effect on whatever we're, we're attacking with it and not enough to do serious harm to ourselves. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't use medicines and drugs, because I'm a big believer in using them where they're appropriate. It doesn't mean we might want to think about just medicating everything, though. That's my take by Jack Spierko. Anyway, moving on from there, let, let us remind you real quick about the Member Support Brigade. Do you love this show? Do you like what we do? Do you think when you get off a show like today's show, like, wow, what, what was the knowledge really worth? Well, if you think it's worth 20 cents... If you just think the show's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. That's what it comes out to at $50 a year. And then here's the good part. Uh, you, you, you help support the show that you love at 20 cents an episode, and then you go into the members area and you get these discounts, and you use them, and they save you more money than you put into the kitty. A win-win-win scenario. Who's the third? I mean, obviously I win. Obviously you win. Who's the third winner? Well, the vendors that give you guys discounts get business they wouldn't otherwise have. We call that incremental revenue. That is lifeblood of growing your business is incremental revenue. So I have tried to create a situation where you guys can help me, I can help you, and we can all help small business people. If you notice, you don't see, you know, JC Pennies or, or Sears or even somebody like Midway USA in our, uh, you know, which would make a lot more sense, I guess, in the member support brigade. I try to work with small companies. I try to work with companies that are, you know, uh, from a one-man operation up to about 40 or 50 employees because those are the companies that are building the, the true renaissance in business in America, and I believe in supporting them, and that's why if you look at my sponsors, guys, I'm big enough now. I could have ditched my sponsors, tripled my rates, and brought on sponsors that have much bigger names. I, I really could have. You know why I won't do it? You dance with the one that brung you, folks. That's why. These are the people that are supporting the Members Brigade, supporting the show. They've been with us. Um, I'm bringing a new sponsor on soon because I've actually had a spot open for a while because uh, somebody you know, went away, and I'll just leave it at that. And um, I, I just haven't even bothered to try to replace it. And when you see who the new sponsor is, you'll understand why we're taking them on. We're taking them on because they're right out of the community. That's what we do, guys. We help others in this business. Uh, we help others in, the, in this community. That's what TSP is really all about. And if you want to be part of that, consider joining my member support brigade and, and be part of it. And do business with these small companies. You know, I hear a lot of times, I don't even use the discounts, man. I just want to support the show. 
I appreciate that. I really do. And some of you are overseas, and you can't really use most of the discounts, and I get that. But if you're going to buy something, guys, please, if you're going to buy something anyway, just check and see if somebody in the brigade has a solution for your issue. Because they've stepped up and said, we want to support what's going on here. Check out some of the really cool stuff we have that's not typical prepper stuff, the, the infused olive oils from Olive Basket, the Mai Tai coffee, stuff like that. Really, really cool. Okay. Next up, let's go ahead and uh, get into it. I'm going to go straight into our first uh, call of the day today. Uh, this one is for f this one's for uh, Stephen Harris, and it is on alternators. And it says for Stephen, Stephen. Before I ask this question, question, I solemnly certify I understand the following: an alternator is not a lightsaber. An alternator is not a lightsaber. Again, an alternator is not a lightsaber. Having said that, I'm wondering how to figure out what the output capacity is for an alternator at idle. Since an inverter draws power from the battery, I want to know that I'm not exceeding the alternator's capacity to recharge the battery when drawing power at idle. Is there a simple way to figure this out, or am I trying too hard? By the way, I currently use a Harris-approved 800-watt, 1600-peak inverter to power my freezer and fridge during blackouts, and it works great. Thanks for everything, Adam in North Carolina. Mr. Harris, understanding that it's not a lightsaber, can we figure out what kind of output we're getting from that alternator in a simple way? Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question with the expert counsel. You got that right. Your alternator is no lightsaber. This question is in reference to the class that I have on solar1234.com called How to Power Your House from Your Car, which once you've had this, you'll go, why did I need that generator? At least it'll let you understand the relationship between your car and a generator and what you can and can't do. And it's amazing what can be done with your car that's sitting in your driveway that you already own. The answer to your question is, the alternator of a car puts out about 400 watts. When it's idle. I know people say, I got a 120 amp alternator. I got a 180 amp alternator in my car. Yeah, that's when it's spinning at 8,000 RPMs, not 800 RPMs at idle. Okay? At 8,000 RPMs, you're putting on a kilowatt. Good for you. Try to hook up anything to your car when you're going down the road 70 miles an hour. Good luck. It really is not going to work. So you're stuck with what your alternator can output at idle, which is about 400 watts. So if you got an Energy Star efficient refrigerator, it's 120 to 200 watts when it's on. If you got an Energy Star efficient freezer, it's about 120 to 200 watts when it's on. So your 400 watts coming out of your alternator hooked up to your battery, hooked up to your inverter, can easily power things in and around your house. And then again, take my refrigerator and freezer class at solar1234.com so you don't have to be a freak about powering your refrigerator and freezer going, oh, I got to power my refrigerator and freezer. I got to power my refrigerator and freezer. There are so many things that can be done so you don't need to power them and just go listen to it. You'll get a phenomenal understanding that no one else is going to tell you, let alone FEMA, Radio.gov. They're never going to tell you this stuff. And 
you will be so prepared for the next disaster. You know, the power will fail, and your wife's going to go, well, how are we going to power the refrigerator and freezer? And you're just going to go, we don't need to. We're all we're all set. And <laughs> it's as simple as some soda bottles and water, guys. So when your car is at idle and you're making 400 watts, if you're drawing less than 400 watts, then the power from the alternator is going to your inverter to power your less than 400 watts and it's going to your battery to recharge your battery if the battery's not at 100%. When you're drawing more than 400 watts from your car, what you're doing is you're now pulling from the alternator and pulling from the battery at the same time. If you wanted to hook up your super-duper lightsaber to your 1,600-watt inverter hooked up to your car and power it up, and you left it on running long enough, you would eventually stall out the car. Most people don't realize this, but yes, it can happen. So, in general, it's a lot simpler than it sounds. Uh, listen to how to power your house from your car. And as Jack says, how many of you have a generator? How many of you have a generator sitting in your driveway already and realize you don't need to buy a generator? And it's amazing. You got a $30,000 car out there. It'll power your house easily. It'll power the stuff that you need to have powered easily. And you already own it. You don't need to go buy a generator. If you do want to go buy a generator, which is a step up in your preparedness, and I would recommend it, when you can afford it, after you have a couple months of food and water taken care of, then on solar1234.com, you'll find generator show number one and number two. Number one is all about selecting the right generator for you. Number two is about all of the legal and illegal, safe and unsafe ways to hook up a generator to your house and utilizing the generator. Oh, if you have a generator, you want the fuel and fuel storage class that I also have up at solar1234.com so you can store all the fuel that you could so desire. So thanks for calling in. That's the short answer on uh, the alternator. It's going to make about 400 watts. And so you draw more, it's coming off the battery, you draw less, it's going into the battery. It is truly a hybrid generator. Your car at idle with an inverter hooked up is truly the definition of a hybrid generator. And it will work very well for you. If you want to know about all of the classes I have done with Jack and links to everything that I have at solar1234.com, and all the other 1234 websites, please go to Stephen1234.com for all the true stories and testimonials and all the links. And I'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you. You know, kind of my additions there, and if you go listen to Steve's uh, previous stuff, you'll you'll hear it explained in, in detail, is that what you have to do in these situations is pick and choose. And Steve says you don't have to worry about, you know, powering your refrigerator and your freezer, yet he tells you how to power your refrigerator and freezer. Well, why? Because, well, you don't have to worry initially. The longer you're out, the more it becomes critical, 
And things like throwing uh, additional uh, frozen bottles of water in your freezer to take up additional space, moving some of those to the refrigerator when you have an outage, covering everything up with blankets, stuff like that he covers. It, it extends how long you have to, before you have to worry about it. It's cold in there, and the whole point of a refrigerator or a freezer is to stay cold. So what enables you to do then is say, hey, I'm going to run my refrigerator or and my freezer or my standalone freezer and then my refrigerator freezer for a couple hours here and a couple hours there, and then I can run some other things. I'm going to charge some batteries, and then I'm not going to do anything at certain times of the day. I'm going to go silent and deep like a submarine, and that's what we have to do in these power outages. We get spoiled. We get very, very spoiled in America with the fact that everything, and I should say the whole, th the whole first world, you know, if I want a light on, I flip a switch. If I want a TV on, I turn it on. My wife's watching the TV in one room, and I want to watch a different show in the other room. I go do it. The kid's on a, you know, uh, a video game in the third room, and then somebody's got a stereo going outside, and there's a pump running in my pool. And, yeah, that's great when the grid's up, but when it goes down, we have to pick and choose. Uh, next question is totally different. It is for Gary Collins, um, our expert and guru on paleo primal nutrition and all things nutrition. This question is from Brandon. Brandon says, what are your thoughts on incorporating intermittent fasting into a primal lifestyle? Uh, Gary, what say you on that subject? I know you have a lot to say on intermittent fasting. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and we are here again with some insightful health questions and answers through the primal lifestyle. Uh, Dennis today was asking about intermittent fasting and if it's okay to incorporate this into the primal lifestyle. And the simple answer is absolutely. Intermittent fasting is a part of the primal lifestyle and it is a principle that I teach. It is explained in my book, Change Your Body, Change Your Life. I have a section on it, uh, very in depth, but basically intermittent fasting is when you do not consume food, any food items for 16 hours, and then you use a window of eight hours to eat. It's it, it, There's different variations, but that's a simplistic way to put it. And during that eight hours, most people usually consume their first meal at noon. So their their breakfast technically is lunch, and they will not – their last meal is around seven, eight o'clock at night. And what that does is it prolongs – by going and not eating for 16 hours, that – continues you when you wake up. When you wake up, you're in a fat-burning state because your body has not consumed anything for several, several hours, so it relies on fat as energy. Remember, fat is almost two and a half times more energy-dense than protein and carbohydrates. That's why we store fat, and that's why we use it as, as our primary energy source for those of us who are fat-adapted. And in other episodes, you've heard me talk about that the standard American diet, though, and Americans today were sugar burners. And that is not how our bodies were intended to work. So with that, incorporating it, it is not for beginners. I never teach this to beginners. You have to have the basic principles of the primal lifestyle. You know, you have to be comfortable with them. You have to have incorporated them and using them on a, a pretty regular basis. And with that, it means you have to have a good exercise program and that you need to be able to have the diet at least pretty well wired in. It does not work for beginners in the sense that you're a sugar burner. You cut off that sugar source and your body goes into chaos. You you get dizzy, you have headaches, you get cranky, your joints hurt, and you start to detox real quickly. You're just not fat adapted. You have to be fat adapted for this to work correctly. And Dennis is using it for weight loss. 
he's only using a four hour window to eat and there's nothing wrong with that. He has found something that works for him and that's the thing. You have to play with it. And, and if you hear, hear periodic fasting, that's the same thing. Now, fasting is when you don't consume any food except for water or maybe unsweetened tea for 24 to 36 hours. That's something totally different, and that is not what we're discussing here. That's a topic for another time. Uh, but what I, I'll give you a couple quick things about intermittent fasting. I've been doing it for several years now. I it, it, There's no rhyme or reason to mine anymore. I just, it depends when I can eat, it depends how I feel, if I'm hungry, but I do not eat breakfast anymore. I have not eaten breakfast for years. Every once in a while, I'll eat breakfast if I'm out with friends or, you know, out of town or something like that. But 99% of the time, I do not eat breakfast. I go straight to the gym or I work out, do my workout outdoors or whatever my exercise is for the day. I do it in the morning because it's the easiest for me. And then I do not eat, it could be anywhere from, 11, 12 to 3 in the afternoon. It, it varies. I Two times this week, I didn't consume my first meal till 4 in the afternoon, and it was on a workout day. Now, with that, I want you to understand that your body, that what makes intermittent fasting so good is, well, not only for weight loss, but it's a kind of a way for your body. It goes into a catabolic mode, which means it uses its own tissues for energy. Well, they have found through studies that your body being highly resilient and smart, you know, biology and chemistry, our biochemistry is fascinating. Our body actually goes after broken tissues first. Wow, that makes sense, right? You, you know, you're taking that stress off your body through digestion because digestion takes a ton of energy. So your body goes, okay, I don't have to digest food right now, so now I've got time to scavenge. And I need energy, so where am I going to get it? Well, it makes sense. It goes after broken or broken tissue, broken cells. So they have found that your body will actually go after cancer cells, and it will also go after broken tissues, break it down, uses energy, and excrete the the waste material out. Pretty amazing. Um, also, what was fascinating? Another study by the Intermountain Medical Center Heart Institute found that uh, intermittent fasting increased HGH levels, human growth hormone in men by 2,000% and in women by 1,300%. So when you go into intermittent fasting mode, or what happens is your HGH naturally rises. Pretty amazing. That is part of the anti-aging benefit of intermittent fasting too, which makes sense. Less, less uh, burden you put on your body and less cellular stress. That's what happens when you continually eat, especially when we're burning sugar all the time because that's what the standard American diet is. Well, guess what? You know, that's going to help with the anti-aging process. When you eradicate sugars, use intermittent fasting to, to not digest food, less stress on your, your internal organs. So that's how that works. Um, let me give you some good tips here that I, I like to follow. Work your way up to 16, a 16 hour fast. First try four to five hours between meals and then work your way up. That's the best way to do it. But remember, you have to have the, the beginning principles of the primal lifestyle mastered. Uh, remember, uh, to naturally go into, you go into fat burning mode while you sleep. Um, you know, you want to go 14 to 16 hours when you finally can get to that point. Um, 
that's why it's easier just to not eat in the morning and continue that because if you eat in the morning, well, then you've got to go through that cycle and then you're going to get close to going to bed and you're probably going to be starving. You're going to be very hungry. Coconut oil is a great resource. Coconut oil does not, uh, does have no effect on your, your uh, blood sugar levels and it's comprised of medium change triglycerides, which are converted into ketone bodies. And that is a, a direct energy source. It's one of the few food sources in, uh, in our, uh, in our food world that actually gets converted directly into energy. So it's, if you're having struggling, grab and just suck down a spoon of coconut oil to get you by. Um, if you feel lightheaded during a fast, eat something. Um, that means your blood sugar is drastically low and just, especially for beginners, definitely, or you could be hypoglycemic, uh, which is low blood sugar. So make sure that you eat something. If you're pregnant or trying to conceive, and this is male or female, remember there were con conception diets for the man and woman, do not use fasting techniques, intermittent fasting techniques. Um, and it, I always get this, is it safe for athletes to intermittent fast? Absolutely. You will not bonk if you're fat adapted. I've done an experiment. I read, rode 60 miles on my road bike without a break except for to go to the bathroom real quick. And all I brought was water. I didn't bonk. I wasn't starving to death. Um, it lasts, I think it took me about four and a half, five hours with the drive is around six hours and I burn a ton of calories. So I hope that answers your question and gives you a little insight to intermittent fasting. If you have any questions, make sure to put it in the comments or email me at contact at primalpowermethod.com. Thanks a lot, guys. Good stuff from Gary. I, I think I want to kind of add to it that I, I have found personally that this just happens um, as you develop what, what Gary calls fat adapted, which I call naturally adapted, that human beings are naturally designed to acquire a, a huge portion of our caloric intake from fat and to run on fat. If you think about it, it's it's like charging a battery with energy and then pulling energy from the battery versus charging the battery with a form of energy that's converted to another form of energy that's converted to another form of energy that then goes into the battery that then comes out of the battery. So the fat is like the same type of energy that the body stores going in. And, and we're, we're, so we're designed to burn fat. That's, that's what we're designed to do. Uh, we need protein, and to a lesser degree, we need some carbohydrates in our diet for certain other essential functions. And some of the things that we get, you don't necessarily get as much of it in fat. So we need a rounded diet. But uh, the bulk of our diet should come from fat and or protein. And here's a little addition for you on protein. 60% of your calories from protein end up as glucose as your body synthesizes that protein over. So you can even push blood sugar up with proteins, but you don't push blood sugar up with fat. And a lot of the problems we have today are, are from swings in the blood sugar and from the inflammation, uh, various inflammations that result from those swings in blood sugar and from the liver and kidney system trying to deal with toxins that shouldn't be there in the first place that are coming out of our food. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for this and in becoming more fat adapted, not fearing fat. And I can tell you right now, if you want to be able to go a long time without eating, make that recipe that we put on the show a few weeks ago from Erica uh, on, uh, on yogurt 
uh, with uh, you know adding the whole cream to it. I use heavy cream with it, and I even used I like doubled her her amount of cream. You eat one little one little uh, jelly jar full of that stuff, and you don't want to eat for for hours and hours and hours. And that's the power of fat. Because if you think about yogurt, it's not it's it's almost liquid. It's kind of solid, but it's almost liquid. And when you eat it, it goes into a liquid pretty quick when it mixes with you know what's going on. There's no substance there, and yet you feel completely fulfilled. And I think that there's there's a lot to be gained from that. And to me, I wouldn't even think about going with intermittent fasting without using things that are like that to help you know get through that period of time. I want to move on next to um, a question from Michael Jordan. This comes from Tori. Tori says, epic fail. Two top bar hives swarmed on day two. I tried installing two packages into two top bar hives the past spring. The top bar hives were, were new, built in January. The bees were installed the first week of April in Zone 5 in Central Oregon. Two days later, both hives swarmed. And Paul and Patty is in a spring uh, sugar syrup feeder inside each hive. And he clues to what I did wrong Michael, can you give us some help here? It's very frustrating. You put brand new bees in the hive and then they just leave. What do you think went wrong? Oh my God, Tori. I'm so sorry to hear that your investment in beekeeping was painful. Tori, I'm going to help you the best I can from where I'm at. The first thing is I want you to read a list of glossary terms. The one thing is we all want to be on the same page when we talk about bees. That when I say colony of bees, we're not confused with hive of bees or swarm of bees. A good glossary ter uh, terms can uh, help anyone in any specific trade. So knowing your technical terms is always really needed. So I wanted to get uh, get one out to everybody, and uh, we have one in the beekeeping design course. I think that's pretty full and pretty pretty precise. Now let's break down your question. I'm going to uh, look at all this. Is that you're a first time beekeeper? I'm glad they're not doing just one hive because one hive is not going to help you that you will need like two to three hives to kind of keep going as a beekeeper because this will help you see how all the other hives are doing, let you move brood from hive to hive if needed, and split them to fix winter kills off to regrow if, if, if you have problems of losing your bees like you have. So you try to install two packages of bees, and the packages are about three to four pounds of bees with a queen in a cage for that colony. Some are marked and easy to see. Some are inseminated. Some have their wings clipped, and some are virgins for your location for natural drone breeding. I don't know what kind of bees you got, the packages, or anything like that. Uh, the packages will have a feeder can in them for shipping. Uh, to place all this in a top bar system is different than a Langstroth or even Eco or Barrel Hives. So I'm going to go right with your question and specifically for top bar beekeeping. So that's what we're going to go with. Your hives are new, and I would not worry about uh, about them being new or anything like that unless the wood is treated wood. If they were built with treated wood, I I would get rid of them then because that's just going to kill your bees and drive them out anyway. Uh, I like cedar or pine. Uh, cedar and pine is good because of mite control. It helps to push the bees out because of the scents and or the the mites out because of the scents. But we just need good space for the bees. Uh, so always make sure that you set your top bar hive up according to the sun charts, the wind breaks, the wind, so the water sources, and stuff like that. Now you have your top bar set. You've picked out your bees <clears throat> from a good source, I hope. The first thing we want to make sure is that you've started wax on the top bars. Uh, I like to put two inches of wax foundation hanging. 
the the bees will uh, take it from there. Uh, they just see that and they just build right down. Uh, put your division board around the ninth and eighth top bar. Uh, removing it one month to open up the hive space for the workers to move in and out of the hive. Uh, you said you had pollen patties and liquid feed for them, and that's awesome because you need to feed them. After the first year, you will see how much feed you will need by uh, feeding them. You're going to get to see what it takes to feed them. And, and you want to try to even just boost them in the spring and kind of see what kind of honey storage they have after that over the winter. That's that's top bar beekeeping is that your first year you're just going to feed them see what they eat and how fast they grow you're going to see what their winter storage is like and you're going to put a feeder there and when they have an ability to feed they're going to feed from it and when they don't they're not going to be able to but hopefully they eat most of their winter storage and what you're going to see is how much winter storage they ate to compare to what you're feeding them and that's going to tell you how much you're going to have to feed them for your time span if they don't have enough room for winter storage uh, you know, they can only fill up so much in so long of a time. So sometimes you have to build extra feed for them to get them going until they establish a good colony in that hive. Um, I would say feed in the spring because you need to boost them after a hard winter and probably get them uh, inoculated with something, uh, with chamomile tea or something like that to get them ready. Um, now, now that you've kind of got your feed, your top bar all set up, you're ready to dump the bees in the top bar. So let's get suited up. Let's do a dry run. Let's just walk through it, and I'm going to tell you uh, that once you even get it going, hell, you might even want to go through it twice just to be comfortable with what you're doing. What I am going to do is I'm going to put a 1-inch uh, by 12-inch uh, long plank from the ground to the door. So it's going to be like a 1 by 12 from the ground to the door, and then I'm going to go ahead and uh, place a white sheet over that, over that area. And then it's kind of like, you know, the red carpet to go on to homecoming, that all these bees are going to be able to march right up the walkway and uh, into the hive. So I, I build my red carpet greeting to my hive with this white sheet so I can see the bees and what they're doing as they go up the sheet on a nice sturdy board into the front door of the top bar. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to bang the package of bees down and to the opposite end of the queen cage that the package is going to have that that feeder can in there and then the queen cage on one side so i'm going to bang it down into the opposite side so all the bees fall away from the queen cage and i'm going to quickly remove the feeding can grabbing the queen cage and putting the feeder can back in the package i'm then going to go ahead and put that package down by the end of my walkway that i've built now I've got my queen cage, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to remove the capping off the queen cage, putting my thumb over it, and then I'm going to get a little piece of marshmallow, a little half piece of a mini marshmallow, and I'm going to stick it right in that hole. Now the queen's still in the cage, and I have this little mini marshmallow in there. Sometimes they already come with some candy in there or something, but I like a little mini marshmallow because they eat it really fast. Within three to four days, they've eaten it out, and on the fifth day, she's usually out of the queen cage. So I've got my queen cage in my hand, and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to hook that on about the fifth frame, which would be like the middle of the hive from the backboard that you placed in the hive around the eighth and ninth frame and the front door. So she's going to hang in the middle of that area, and... Uh, She's ready to go. I think that your best bet then is just reach down 
and I'm going to go ahead and take the feeder can out of the package and I'm going to go ahead and lay the package of bees on the side. And the bees are going to start marching out, flying out, going everywhere. And this is the most natural way for the bees to enter a hive. Uh, a lot of videos show them banging them around and all that stuff. I just want you to go ahead and just lay the package on the side and let the bees march up that whiteboard. And you're going to be able to watch them, film it, stay with them. It's like birthing your baby, man. You're, you want to be there. You want them to see an incline of what you are and have a march up that plank into that beehive. Um, the next day, go ahead and check that package and make sure it's empty. If not, just give it a little a little bang and dump the rest on the walkway so they can walk right up and go home. And then add your feeders to the hive. I'm not sure how you're feeding them, but I have a good top bar feeder that I've shown a man named Mick Burke in Pennsylvania how to use. It's called EU Best. EU Best, all one wording, EU Best Beekeeping Honey Entrance Feeders. Uh, they can be found on Amazon. They're really cheap. They're like $1.25 each. You get like 10 of them for 9 bucks, and that's even with shipping. And uh, they're really simple, easy to use. I like them. You can use them with 2-liter bottles, uh, milk jugs. They're, they're a really cool feeder. And uh, you just want to be able to check the feed every day for two weeks to see how much feed they're eating. And in one week, you're going to open that hive and see to make sure that queen's out of that cage. If not, let her out. And if she's dead, call your bee guy and yell at him and, and tell him that that was a crap queen. That then, you know, in one week she's died and they haven't got out of the cage yet. So uh, make sure she's out and in there. And in two weeks, go back and check and see how she's growing. If the queen did die, you're going to do the reinsertion. The bees will be in there working because they're expecting a queen. And you're just going to get your little queen cage, put the marshmallow in and reinsert it in the hive. And you're going to wait two weeks again to make sure that she's out and friendly with all the bees. Um, I don't. I, I want you to know I don't think the bees swarmed out of your hive. I just don't think the bees took it as a home. Because uh, you had both of them done the same way. I would say that the queens were released and left the hives taking the bees with them. A swarm is overpopulation and a colony split. Uh, sometimes not equally, but nonetheless, it's left with usually a queen, bees, and brood to keep going, and that's a swarm. Um, I want to let you know I'm running out of time, uh, so I'm going to end with this. Uh, buy your honey from a local keeper that you respect. Support your cottage businesses and help your fellow man. And I want to thank all of you from getting honey from a bee-friendly company. I am so blessed. I I am using that money now this month to teach 817 kids from the ages of 9 to 13 in the art of keeping bees through the Wyoming Department of Agriculture. So I'm, I'm putting all that good money to use, and I appreciate it. I know we're expensive, so I want to let you know I thank you, and I thank you for letting us help the kids. All right, um, next question is for Nick Ferguson, and it's on swales. And... Uh, Good topic for him since he's about to uh, do a pretty cool Earthworks course in mid-October. Here's this question. Um, question about swales near a household well for drinking water. How close is too close? What are the chances of adverse side effects, and what would they be? My family and I live in southeastern Idaho, 
in the high desert place on 10 acres, and I would want to use swales in my Zone 2 food forest, but it will run right up against my well and pump house on the west side. Just asking to see if there's a standard or recommended standoff distance from a well site. I don't want to have problems with our drinking water. Nick, what say you on this one? Hey there, Nick Ferguson calling in to answer Adam's question on the minimum distance one should keep a swale from a well. Now, one of the only concerns I'm going to have is, am I using that swale for fertigation? I don't want to have a lot of manure and soakage of any kind of fecal matter into the area right around a wellhead because I don't want to accidentally contaminate my drinking water. As far as soaking water around your wellhead, seeing as how you are in kind of a desert climate, most likely your groundwater is quite deep. And any infiltration around the well casing is going to get filtered out. So any bacteria or potential contaminants that are in that water, if they're having to go down a hundred feet through sand and rock and any other material before they can actually enter your well casing and be pumped out of the ground, it's going to be clean by the time it gets down there. So as far as contaminating that wellhead, I wouldn't worry about that unless, of course, like I said, we're talking about fertigation. Other than that, the only real concerns I would have are, are you leaving enough room around the wellhead and the well site to utilize it and to service it. Now, some wells, you, you might go down 200 feet, three, 600, 800 feet. And if you try pulling out a pump from that deep down and all of the line, you're going to have to get a truck in there with a like a crane attachment on it to be able to pull that whole line out to service the pump. Now, I don't really know what your your pump setup is like, but I would always think about access. So I want to think about what potential problems could I have with the well and how would I need to service it. So if that means I need to be able to get a two-ton truck in there with a crane that can pull the well pump and and all the line out, then I want to make sure that I don't have, I haven't blocked off that access. Now, one of the other concerns that I would have are what kind of trees are you planting? Are these trees that are going to be sending out really, really aggressive root systems? I'm, I'm a little leery of large trees or aggressive root systems right around a well site. If, if these are smaller fruit trees and such, then don't worry about it. But generally, I would say give yourself about 20 feet, 15 feet of clearance as a radius around that well head and around any structures that you have there, like your well house, to give you enough room to maintain it, service it, pull the well pump and the well line, all that stuff. And that should get you far enough away that most trees aren't going to interfere with it. You don't want a tree years and years down the road with a still serviceable well and those tree roots have cracked and destroyed your um your well casing 
So those are the things that I would think about. Other than that, I say go nuts, man. So I hope that helps, Adam. And in other news, for anyone who hasn't checked out the Earthworks Workshop coming up, head on over to my website, and you can find lots of details. I I shot a video walking through the site showing you where the contours were, what things were kind of going to look like, where the pond sites are, and I also have a really cool promo video. So if you haven't checked that out, you might be interested. Head on over there and check it out. I'd love for you to come. We're going to have a lot of fun, and I guarantee you're going to learn a lot. I'm Nick Ferguson with Permaculture Classroom. Y'all have a great weekend. I agree with Nick. My addition is that I think if you're on a well, your drinking water should be going through a Berkey, and I don't care where you live. And I'll tell you why. We have a tendency to think very compartmentalized as human beings, and we think, okay, I've got this pocket of water underneath my house that I've plugged into, and I'm pulling that water up out of there. Well, that that water is in either a shallow or a deep aquifer. And that looks like a lake underground, a fairly large lake, and it might be an enormous lake. And, and that means that there could be contaminants in your water from miles away, dozens of miles away, or even hundreds of miles away, depending on exactly how that water flows and exactly what contamination sources you have. And testing a, a well today does not guarantee its safety and purity tomorrow. So... Personally, our water, we had it tested. It came up completely safe to drink. Um, bit of sulfur content that makes it a little unpleasing if it doesn't go through a softener first. And uh, the softener does help with the sulfur issue in addition to the hardness. Uh, very, very hard water, but totally safe to drink. And we still, every drop of water that goes into our bodies, and, and all the water that we use for doing things like brewing teas um, and, and cooking, etc., goes through a Berkey. And we have a system that's pretty simple. We have a, a washing sink in the in the laundry room, and it sits there, and we just keep filling up and keep bottles full of water. That way we always have reserve water as well. Um, I'm not going to say that we never, like, if we're going to boil something, don't take water from the sink because you're going to boil it anyway. And, but, I mean, there are things that you can get in your water that uh, boiling doesn't take, certain certain chemicals that you can actually concentrate. And personally, I think no matter where your water comes from, I am more comfortable with it going through a Berkey just to make sure I'm drinking the cleanest, purest water I can get. And you can use other filters. I mean, I love my Berkey. I love having Jeff Gleason, the Berkey guy, as a sponsor. Uh, so, of course, I'm going to mention him. But you can use whatever filter you want, honestly. And, and almost every system works very well. Uh, they may not work the best, but they work very well for what you're doing and, and for reduction of contaminants, etc. So that's like my little addition on that one. Next question is for brand new expert council member uh, Doc Bones uh, of Bloom and Doom, or doomandbloom.net, I should say. Um, and here's the question. If a person is 100% new to the medical part of prepping, what are the first 10 items they should be getting right out of the gate for a basic first aid kit? The 249-piece kits from box stores are generally Samotrin, Advil ointment, and 200 Band-Aids and gauze pads. Yeah, Doc Bones, what do you say? How do we address this getting started with the medical portion of prepping? 
Hey, Joe Alton here, physician and author of the Survival Medicine Handbook, and now proud to be a member of Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast Expert Council. I'm an old man on a new mission, and that's to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Now, this week I'm presented with the following question. If a person is 100% new to the medical part of prepping, what are the first 10 items they should be getting right out of the gate for a basic first aid kit? The 249-piece kits in the box stores are generally some Motrin, some Advil, an ointment or two, and say 200 Band-Aids and gauze pads. They seem like a total waste of money. The case itself may be more valuable than what's inside. Where would you start a person buying just what they can get at local stores? Sort of like starting out with first aid supplies like we do copy canning. Well, if you're new to the medical part of prepping, at least you figured out that you need more than beans and bullets. Because let's face it, you can have all the beans in the world and all the bullets in the world, but it's not worth a hill of beans and you'll just shoot yourself in the foot if you don't have the bandages. You're right, it makes a lot more sense to put together your own kit than buying some Walmart version so that you can have stuff that will be useful beyond the everyday band-aids that fill up most kits. Make your kit personally useful for you. And that comes from a guy who has a store full of custom medical kits. If you have the time, just look at the contents we freely publish of all of our kits on the website and redesign them so that they make sense to you. So let's talk about some of the first items that a new prepper can find at the local store, and if not there, at least at the local pharmacy. Let's start with the most basic of all, hand sanitizer and soap. If you're going to be medically responsible for your family in times of trouble, hygiene issues are going to be big, and they'll cause a lot of unnecessary deaths due to infection. Most bacteria and viruses can't stand up to plain old soap and water. So before you touch anyone in your role as survival medic, Wash your hands, for goodness sake. Hygiene also applies to everyone staying as clean as possible. I know nobody's going to be smelling like flowers, but the cleaner you are, the healthier you'll be. This also goes for your water and food. Bleach, iodine tablets, boiling, or just UV light from the sun will go a long way to staving off infections like dysentery. Gloves. Well, before you work on a wound, you want to have gloves on. This is for your protection as well as the patient's. Have a good supply of these and get them in hypoallergenic nitrile, not latex. Now, antiseptics. Now, most wounds in survival settings, they're going to be dirty. So sutures and staples, while they have their place, won't be used on most injuries you'll be dealing with. No matter how you approach a wound, you'll have to purge it of debris and bacteria. Alcohol, iodine, betadine solution, hydrogen peroxide, chlorhexidine, these are decent choices to stockpile here. And you can find them just about anywhere. A syringe that you can flush the wound with might be very useful also. How about a light source? Day's day, night's night, and people might just need your help after dark. Now, if that's the case, you're going to want to have a light source. Now, flashlights are fine. Pen lights are good for checking out pupils. But you want to have both hands free, so get a decent headlamp. I found over a dozen different ones at the local Walmart. Now, how about a good pair of scissors? Large scissors will be helpful to cut away clothes to look at a wound. You can get EMT shears or bandage scissors, but their specific design is just meant to protect the victim's skin when you're working fast. You'll find them at your local pharmacy, but if you're careful, maybe just a solid, regular pair of scissors might work for you. Over-the-counter medications. Now, you might think that everything you're going to deal with is a wound, but that's just not the case. 
You'll be dealing with diarrhea, fevers, colds, flus, allergies, acid reflux, gosh, a lot of other stuff. Have an entire medicine cabinet in your medical bag because you're going to need it. Even our trauma kits have an entire collection of meds to deal with illnesses. Ace wraps. You'll deal with a lot of sprains and strains, so have a way to immobilize injured joints. Ice packs are another item that will help with orthopedic issues. Have some disposable shake and breaks, and have some reusables that you can make either hot or make cold. Gauze dressings. Of course, every kid has gauze, but you need a good variety of dressings to be effective as a medic. Gauze squares are a good start, but you need roller dressings and tape to cover up and protect those cuts and burns. If you're dealing with burns, you need non-stick dressings such as Telfa pads. Thicker pads like ABD pads are useful also. They can be found at the local pharmacy. Burn gel, aloe vera, that would be great to put on those burns before you cover them. Make sure you have some of that. Butterfly closures, small cuts that you feel are acceptably cleaned and can be closed you can use butterfly closures or something called steri strips on these. If you don't have these, you can use duct tape just by making two cuts in the middle of each side, fold that section over so it's no longer adhesive, and put that over the cut itself and stretch the tape over both sides of the wound. Boom! Improvised wound closure. There you go. Uh, masks. Every survival sick room should have a good supply of face masks. There are different types we'll go over in the future, but the first thing you need is a barrier between you and the infectious person. They might be put on that person, or on you, or preferably on both of you. You can find these in bulk at any big store like Costco. Items that you might not think are medical supplies but are include plastic sheeting to put on sick beds, dedicated linens and eating utensils for the infected, and other items that we'll also talk about in the future that make up an effective hospital room or tent. Lastly, here's something you probably don't consider a medical item but is very, very useful, and that is a pressure cooker. You may have medical items you want to reuse, right? They're probably not making this stuff anymore, so you want to reuse whatever you possibly can, or even dressings that you want to be sure are relatively sterile. Pressure steaming these at 15 to 20 PSI for about 30 minutes will do the job. There's a special way to do this, and you better read the cooker's instruction manual. But having disinfected instruments and dressings, it's a great way to succeed as a medic, even if everything else fails. I'll bet you can think of a few simple items that you'll need in times of trouble that I haven't mentioned yet, and I hope you'll add them in the comments section. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones of the Survival Medicine website, www.doomandbloom.net, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Uh, my my addition here really isn't stuff; it's knowledge. Um, that's why I really recommend Joe and Amy's book, uh, the Survival Medicine Handbook. Uh, that you can get on their website and you get a big discount from it if you're an MSB member, uh, because it'll teach you everything you, you 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 know and everything you need to know and everything you didn't know you need to know about medical prepping and 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 how to actually use the stuff that you have in prep. Uh, and if it all else fails and somebody breaks through your line, you can beat them to death with it, too. So that's always nice. Uh, but some basic first aid courses, if you've never had them, learning things like CPR, basic uh, pressure bandages and things like that, really, really important that you add the, the knowledge of, of how to apply the material so that when it happens, you can do it. So I think that's really, really important. I'm sure Joe uh, and, and Nurse Amy would agree as well. Uh, moving on, I have another question now. This one for Erica Strauss. 
This one is on uh, fermented condiments. Does anything special have to be done to sauce and condiment recipes in order to ferment them? I've made fermented ketchup and horseradish sauces using a mason jar and an airlock. Been experimenting with salsa recipes, still playing with the taste and trying to make it spicier. Is there anything special I need to do besides adding starter uh, when making fermented salsas? Erica, you are the guru S of fermented food, so what say you on this one? Hi, Brandon. Thanks for your question. You know, one nice thing about lacto-fermenting salsas and other condiments is that you can really play around with the ingredients and adjust the flavors to your taste. So you can increase the garlic or the cilantro if that's what you like, or you can use less lime. So whatever you like with these sort of lacto-fermented condiments, you can go in that direction. But I just want to point out that you do not have that same flexibility with salsa or other mixed ingredient type condiments that you're planning to water bath can. This is just a safety issue. So for a bunch of reasons, you can't just change up the ingredients in a salsa recipe that you intend to water bath can in the same way that you can if you plan on fermenting that recipe. So that's just one more way that fermenting foods can be even better than canning them. But I just want to make sure everyone's clear that when I talk about how much flexibility you have messing around with your salsa, you can't to do that if you're going to can it. You have to follow an approved recipe. All right, now that that's out of the way, let's start with the basics of how to convert in general, a recipe for most any condiment into something that can be fermented successfully. And then, Brandon, I'll get to your specific salsa recipe in a little bit. So most condiments that are basically chunky, like salsas or relishes or chutneys, are very easy to lacto-ferment with only a few adjustments to the recipe. The most important thing is to ensure that you have the right salt content in your condiment so that those salt-tolerant lactic acid bacteria can rapidly colonize your ferment and do what they do to drive the pH more acidic and therefore preserve your fermented condiment. I've found that for things like salsa or similar type of condiments, two teaspoons of fine sea salt for each pound and a half of condiment is about right. So this works out to two teaspoons of fine sea salt to about three cups of salsa or a not quite full quart jar. Now, you don't have to be crazy about this. I mean, don't throw away extra salsa because you're two tablespoons over or something, but just get pretty close to this ratio and you'll be pretty good to go. What I recommend in order to do this general conversion is you just prepare any of your basic chopped or chunky condiment recipe uh, without salt. So just make it as you normally would, but leave out the salt. And then for every three cups or so of finished condiment, add two teaspoons of fine sea salt to the recipe. And then go ahead and with a clean spoon, taste this. You're going to probably notice that it tastes just a tiny bit saltier than you would make it for fresh eating, but it should not be inedibly or unpleasantly salty. If the ferment doesn't taste salty enough at this point, you can go ahead and add more salt. You're not going to hurt anything. But if you feel like, as I generally do at this level, like it's maybe just just a hair saltier than you would have for fresh eating, don't worry. Because as the ferment progresses, the perception of saltiness in that condiment is going to decrease just a little bit as the tanginess of the ferment increases. So this 
is a very normal progression of the flavors with a fermented condiment. So if you dial in the salinity of your condiment, it will be such that you can reliably count on those lactic acid bacteria to take over and begin the fermentation process. You don't have to add whey. You don't have to add a starter. Although if you want to, and that's a process that you're used to, you certainly can. Now, let's say we're dealing with a condiment that's not chunky and loose like a salsa. Let's say we're dealing with something that's smoother and denser like mayonnaise or bean paste or hummus. Well, these kind of condiments can be lacto-fermented as well, but because they're so dense, you really do need to include a beneficial bacterial starter to kickstart that fermentation. You can buy lacto-fermentation starters online, but it's really not necessary. One of the easiest ways to inoculate a condiment that does require a starter is to add whey from live and active yogurt, ideally homemade yogurt, like we've talked about, into the condiment. Yogurt whey has a ton of these beneficial lactic acid bacteria in it. And so this is a really good way to just kickstart that fermentation. If you're using whey as a starter, go ahead and just salt your condiment to taste and then add about one tablespoon of yogurt whey per each cup of prepared condiment. Now, again, this isn't an exact science. If you have four cups of bean puree, but only three and a half tablespoons of whey, don't worry, you're going to be fine. But general ratio is one tablespoon whey per cup of prepared condiment. If you can't or prefer not to use whey because of some sort of a food allergy or something like that, you can use the brine from any successful strong lactic acid ferment as a starter as well. So generally you can tell when a brine has fermented nice and healthy because the brine itself will have matured from a clear salt water to have a kind of milky, opaque look to it. So that kind of brine is very rich in exactly the kind of beneficial bacteria we want to inoculate our ferment with. The drawback to mature lacto-ferment brine is just that sometimes it will have a distinct flavor to it, and it will carry that flavor from whatever you've previously fermented. So, for example, if you have a big jar of lacto-fermented jalapenos, that brine is going to carry some of that spicy, green, pickled jalapeno flavor with it. So if you're using brine to inoculate a new ferment, you just want to make sure that the brine flavor is compatible with whatever you're adding it to. Now, as with any lacto-ferment, your results for salsa or bean paste or any other condiment you're trying to ferment are going to be more consistent and um, more reliable if you exclude oxygen from the ferment. So for best results and to avoid problematic surface scums or molds, I really do recommend weighing down the ferment and or using an airlock system for the best results. So that's how you convert pretty much any condiment into a lacto-fermented equivalent. Now, Brandon, let's talk about your specific salsa recipe. You mentioned using canned tomatoes in the base of your salsa. This should not be a problem, but do make sure that the tomatoes you use don't contain any antimicrobial preservatives. Residual preservatives in the canned tomatoes might have a negative impact on the fermentation. Beyond that, looking at your recipe, I think the only thing I would do is increase the salt a bit, like we discussed earlier. Otherwise, nothing else concerns me. So just dial in the flavor you like, try and get it as spicy as you like it, and you should be good to go. 
Well, guys, kind of a quick one this week, but I think this covers the basics on how you do go ahead and convert your favorite condiments and salsas into lacto-fermented equivalents. Um, I hope this helps. Brandon, I hope this answers your question and gives you the confidence to go forward and ferment away. Guys, thank you so much for all your great questions. Jack, as always, thanks for making this whole show possible for us, the listeners. We sure appreciate it. And guys, keep those questions coming. I'm here to answer your questions on food preservation, urban homesteading, productive homekeeping, and whatever else you think I might be able to help you out with. Do let me know. Again, this has been Erica from Northwest Edible Life. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you next week. Uh, well, my additions here are that, number one, I think there's a lot of people out there going, now this lacto-fermented thing sounds kind of cool and all, but eh, eh, other things in life to do. I think it's one of the easiest things you can add to your life. And I think it has so many benefits. First of all, um, the taste is distinctive, the, 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 the tartness, the sour, but you can control that by how long you let it ferment. So if you pull your ferment a little bit quicker than maybe I would, because I like that flavor, and go into refrigeration, you'll slow it down a great deal. And making it in jars is great. I mean, we have a great big 1.5 liter crock, uh, and that makes a hell of a lot more than you would think it does. But, you know, that's fine for putting up a lot of stuff if you have a root cellar, which we don't. We live in Texas. It's hot. And it's fine if you eat a ton of it. We don't. We eat a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit with dinner, tough stuff like that. So by making a quart, and you know, you can get a pretty big jar. You can get the same size lid, same size airlock, and all works on the larger jars, the, what do you know, like half gallon jars, damn near, uh, you can use. And with the same size of a weight, you know, however you develop your weights. And I found a place called Tamarack Stoneware. Uh, that I purchased some weights that are specifically made for jars on Etsy from, and they seem pretty cool. I'm going to reach out to them and see if they want to do an uh, actual, uh, what do you call it, uh, discount for MSB. Uh, by doing those jars, I mean, that means that when you want to add another fermenter, you need an airlock and a drill and a stopper. And as Erica said before, if you use the wide mouth jars, you can get the really small, uh, short squat jelly jar and then you fill that jar with the same salt brine that you use in your ferment, and you just stick that in there as a, as a weight, so you don't even have to get one of these cool-looking fancy weights. You can just use that. Um, so I think it's something you should try. Now, one thing I wanted to add is you know, getting a whey starter from yogurt and how I do that. I do that one of two ways. One is if I am going to, let's say I'm going to make yogurt, and I'm going to use uh, a little jar of yogurt as a starter or a little cup of, of even store-bought yogurt as a starter. All I do is turn it upside down in the refrigerator overnight. Uh, if I'm also going to be doing some lacto-fermentation at the same time or the, maybe on the same weekend. And then when you open it, the whey is on the top instead of the bottom. And you can usually get a couple teaspoons of whey out of a small cup of yogurt that way real easy. There's a lot of ways in there, but... There's a way, and then there's a way. Uh, the other way I get it, and I really like to do this, and I'm probably going to do this today, is I take either a cheesecloth or something called a flour sack towel, which I actually prefer to cheesecloth, and you put whatever amount of yogurt you want to make into what I call yogurt cheese into that cloth. You tie it up and you hang it, and you put a bowl underneath it to catch the whey, and you'll get a lot of whey out of, let's say, a cup to a pint of yogurt like that. And then you have a great concentrated whey, and this is, this is really, really high-powered stuff. And a couple teaspoons of that into your lacto-fermentation kicks it off. And what I do with the surplus is I drink it. I, I, I really enjoy the taste. I think it's one of those things if you try it, uh, even if you – see, this is the thing with, with human beings. We, we try something that's different. I don't like it. You don't like it. Well, 
maybe give it a little chance. You know, eat a little couple tablespoons of fermented vegetables with your dinner every day for a couple weeks, and all of a sudden you might find out you like it. I find this a lot of times with people that, you know, they take their coffee and they put four tablespoons of sugar in it. They can't drink it without sugar. You know what? Make yourself drink it without sugar for a week and then try it with the sugar in it. And if nothing else, what they end up is going down to like a half a teaspoon of sugar, right? So try things. But the reason I think this can do so much for you is, is if you have a garden, you have this abundance of vegetables coming in this time of year. This is a great way to make sure they don't rot in the refrigerator. You're going to farmer's markets, same type of thing. The, the health benefits are amazing. And it's something you can do. And it's something you can do so easily. And you can start making different things over time. And it's, 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 it's really a safe thing to do as long as you keep your salt levels right. You, you can't really mess it up. And if something doesn't go right, you know it didn't go right. You can tell. And uh, you, you can try a lot of experimentation without a lot of effort with this. And I've even done things like when I'm making the escabeche, which is uh, jalapenos, onions, and carrots. is typical of, of a South American escabeche, fermented escabeche. I add sweet peppers and garlic. And I'll go to the grocery store, and they have like the pre – if I want to do it fast, you have like a little uh, clamshell of like three or four different color peppers, sweet peppers all sliced in perfect slices. Buy one of those, toss it in a jar with some jalapenos and, and carrots and garlic and salt water, and off you go. And uh, I'll tell you what. It's, it is a fantastic way to, to, to add variety to your diet and get those beneficial bacteria back into your guts. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, talk, get another question here. This one for Darby Simpson comes from John. John says, hey, Darby, I was thinking about getting the pastured turkeys as a business next year and was wondering what major considerations I should take. Darby, what say you on pastured turkey? I know that's a significant part of your annual business revenue. Hey there, Jack. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer a question from John Paul down in Tennessee about raising turkeys. And, John, we will just dive right into your uh, questions here that you sent in. Um, first off, calculating your feed costs, uh, what I would tell you to do is just to uh, ask the hatchery that you order the birds from um, to give you some information based on the uh, the breed that you've selected. And they'll kind of have like a rough um, you know, rule of thumb that they can give you in terms of a feed Conversion in terms of you know pounds of feed to pounds of gain uh, on the bird and kind of what we've seen here is about a, a 2.5 to one ratio pretty similar to the the quicker growing um, meat birds that we use out on pasture and we we are using a broad breasted white uh, for a number of reasons that I'll discuss in a minute but that that's a pretty good rule of thumb if you want to be conservative you could do three to one uh, just to make sure that you don't uh, you know sell yourself short in your calculations there and then in terms of the Brooder, honestly, uh, you, you you run your brooder with your turkeys the exact same way that you would for your meat birds. They've got to be kept about 95 degrees. You're using red heat lamps to do that. Uh, you're just constantly managing things in there. Um, but they will be in your brooder for, uh, depending on the, the breed you use, uh, for about five to eight weeks. And again, that's something that, uh, you can talk with the hatchery a little bit about. Uh, the broad-breasted whites will have them in there for anywhere from, you know, five or six weeks, generally speaking, is, is how long they're going to be in there. And then the, the other, uh, big deviation, uh, for, you know, from the turkeys, uh, on the turkeys from, uh, the pasture 
chickens is that, uh, you know, with pastured chickens, you, you start their feed, their protein out at like 21%, and the turkeys have to have a lot higher feed uh, protein content, uh, so you start them out on 28%, and that's simply so that they can develop that big skeleton quickly um, at a young age in order to carry all that weight around later on. And uh, if you don't have the, the correct protein, what you'll start to see is around week four, five, six, seven, some leg problems, and uh, that obviously is going to lead to death of the birds and uh, they're just they're not going to make it. Um, now, in terms of how long they take to feed out, the the broad-breasted whites take about 16 or 17 weeks. Uh, your heritage breeds take about 18 to 26 weeks. The main reason we use the broad-breasted white is because they they take about four months, and it's just it's pure logistics for us here in terms of having brooder space and enough pastured pens that we can run the turkeys in. I don't want to go build more equipment. The equipment's expensive. It just sits there if I don't have chickens in it. Uh, most of the season and I just want to make use of all this existing infrastructure that I have uh, you know for uh, raising the turkeys in so I, I don't I don't want to have all those expenses hanging out there you know each each chicken pen I build is roughly 500 bucks by the time I get feeders and waterers in it and um, if I did the heritage uh, breed birds I'd have to go buy uh, all the stuff to build like you know five six more pens I've got another twenty five hundred three thousand dollars sitting there and we just haven't found it necessary the broad-breasted whites actually graze extremely well on pasture and it is an absolutely amazing product to sell and our customers just love it and it really just works well for us now about our, the chicken pens, we're using the exact same infrastructure like I just mentioned uh, that we use for the chickens. So the feeders, the waterers, the hoop house, everything is exactly the same. There's no additional cost. So this is something that's very easy to uh, function stack and scale up from doing pastured broilers to adding turkeys as a late season enterprise, um, you know, to finish around Thanksgiving. And that's another thing. Our chickens here in central Indiana, we've got to have those guys done by about the middle of October. Um, that's our typically our first frost day. They just can't hack the cold. But these turkeys, I mean, once you get them up to about 10, 12 weeks of age, you can't hardly kill them with a nine iron. I mean, they are just tough as nails. They can hack the cold, and they just keep right on trucking, and uh, they, they really do well out on pasture late in the season. Now, yes, is there anything else that you're forgetting? And, John, there's one big thing that you missed here. Okay, and I'm getting ready to throw you a curveball. I'm telling you I'm going to throw you a curveball. I'm going to tell you what part of the plate the curveball is going to go over, and you're still going to miss it. It's the marketing. Here's the thing. With these turkeys, you're jumping into business, and you want to go out and sell a $90 to $120 bird for a very special meal. Now, any American will tell you that Thanksgiving is the most special meal of the year. They're willing to pay that kind of money for a turkey. We do get a, f a few, like, uh, what I'll call knee-jerk reactionary purchases from customers who don't really shop with us the rest of the year. But by and large, most of my turkeys get sold and marketed to my existing customer list. And... Um, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, who is your customer list? I mean, do you have a big following uh, selling pastured uh, chickens? Uh, you know, do you, do you have a, a big customer list that you can market these turkeys to? Now, if the answer is no, I would honestly tell you, you really need to think twice about starting out with turkeys. Uh, you know, I've got in my email list right now well over 1,500 emails that I market stuff to. I only do 125 turkeys. Now, I could probably do more. 
but 125 works really well for me in terms of brooder space and the, the pins I have and making one trip to the butcher with one borrowed extra large, extra long livestock trailer that I get from my neighbor. Uh, it just works really well. But it's our brand image that allows me to go to an existing customer base and upsell them on one really expensive big piece of meat one time a year. And this is something price-wise that we, we really do swing for the fence. I outsell my competitors, but some of my birds, uh, they're 50% more uh, than, than some of my lower competitors here nearby. But I'm just, I'm out-marketing them. But again, I've got this huge, huge marketing list that I'm selling to. I've got a, a brand image. I've got a lot of credibility with these people, it's, so it's something that I can do easily. If you don't have a big marketing list, I would tell you you need to start very small. And when I say very small, I, I would tell you to start with like 15 or 20 turkeys. Um, that way, you're not left holding the bag if you you know don't get a whole bunch of them sold. It's better to have too little product than, than too much product when you're just starting out. Uh, one other little tip I'll give you, uh, I schedule my turkey butchering date one year in advance. Around here, if you wait until like, you know, January or February to schedule turkeys for the following November, good luck getting a date that's not after Thanksgiving. Like they just, they book up. There's only uh, so many processors. They can only do so many turkeys by hand this way. It's something you've got to be thinking uh, about out, you know, months in advance. And then, John Paul, I got one more really important thing. And, if you don't get anything else from from everything I've told you here, you, you've got to you've got to get this, okay? Honey badger don't care. Honey badger just takes what it wants. Now, if you remember that, you will be successful at everything you do in farming. Hands down. This is the honey badger. Watch it run in slow motion. It's pretty badass. Look, it runs all over the place. Whoa! Watch out, says that bird. Ew! It's got a snake. Oh! It's chasing a jackal. Oh my gosh! Oh, the honey badgers are just crazy. The honey badger has been referred to by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most fearless animal in all of the animal kingdom. It really doesn't give a shit. If it's hungry, it's hungry. Ew, what's that in its mouth? Oh, it's got a cobra? Oh, it runs backwards? Now watch this. Look, a snake's up in the tree. Honey badger don't care. Honey badger don't give a shit. It just takes what it wants. Whenever it's hungry, it just, ew, and it eats snakes? Oh my god, watch it dig. Look at that digging. The honey badger is really pretty badass. They have no regard for any other animal whatsoever. Look, and it's just grunting and, ew, eating snakes. Ew, what's that, a mouse? Oh, that's nasty. Oh, they're so nasty. Ooh, look, it's chasing things and eating them. Okay, guys, uh, uh, to learn more about me, you can go out to my website at DarbySimpson.com and check out some of the free articles I've got out there on all facets of farming and marketing and business planning and infrastructure and breed selection. There's just all kinds of stuff out there. Uh, I've been absent for the last couple of weeks, so kind of a quick apology to the audience that I haven't been around. Uh, we actually just got done running our first on-farm workshop here this past weekend uh, over Labor Day weekend, and man, what a blast. What an absolute success. Uh, we're still on cloud nine from the experience we had here. Um, uh, pretty much a 100% TSP audience, I think, except for maybe two students. 27 students, 10 states, uh, and even one province in Canada. We had people drive to central Indiana from Idaho, Texas, uh, upstate New York, Maryland, Virginia. 
it's very, very humbling and just an awesome group of people. Um, and, and the highlight of the whole weekend was the barter blanket. I mean, guys, if you get a chance to go to a TSP event, honestly, it, it's worth going to that event just for the barter blanket. It was an absolute blast. Uh, I, I came out pretty well. I've got a big pile of loot uh, from that barter blanket, but what a great time. And it just really goes to show what a great community uh, the TSP audience is. So anyway, just wanted to you know, uh, give a shout-out to everybody that, that uh, made the trip to the farm this weekend. We really enjoyed having you, and we'll absolutely be doing more of these events in the future. I'll get a blog post up on this in probably the next week, week and a half, uh, just kind of follow up that you know people who weren't able to come couldn't make it this time. You can go out and read that and just kind of check out what we covered and what we did and what people had to say about it and uh, yeah just go out to and it, like I said it'll be a week and a half or so but we'll get that out there for you and we'll be back in swing each week uh, starting next week uh, answering your questions guys so please feel free to send those in to Uncle Jack and as always guys have a wonderful weekend Jack thank you so much and take care okay guys I actually added in the uh, about a minute there of the Honey Badger video if you've never seen this uh, you really should get on over to YouTube. I'll have a link in the show notes and watch it just for a good laugh on a Friday. And I threw it in there, and the Honey Badger comment was because John is uh, is a, a guy that, that you know worked with us at Permaethos, worked with Darby, and it's a little bit of an inside joke. It's one of those videos we kind of always watch when we get together just to laugh along with something called Nature Walk. Uh, I'll put the Nature Walk video in the show notes today, too, because I think we need more laughs, especially on a day like today. And we'll have a little bit of a discussion about what today is all about at the end of the show. Uh, I actually want to add one more thing, though. So Darby keeps his birds, his turkeys, in a brooder to five to, to seven weeks. Now, I don't know anywhere near as much about turkeys, especially you know if we're talking about wild turkeys and calling them in and shooting them. I probably know more than Darby. But when it comes to raising them for a profit, I, I don't even begin to come close to Darby on that because he does it and I've never done it. I did raise three turkeys this year, and because nobody told me any better, I, I had them with the ducks, and uh, the ducks were uh, about two weeks. Uh, the, the, they stunk, uh, and so they went outside. And so did the baby turkeys. And I had the turkeys out on the grass in the early Texas summer, where it's pretty hot already, at, at two weeks of age. And they did just fine. I, I do see them as honey batters. Now, when you have a hundred, two hundred birds or something like that, and they are a big investment and they are a big premium piece of incremental revenue. Remember that word from uh, earlier uh, in the show? I can understand being a little bit more judicious, but three turkeys, three beautiful, big, giant, broad breasted bronze turkeys uh, at the end of the season already processed. The processing thing, uh, Darby alluded to it, but I would tell you that, like, my thing for people out there that are going to go into the business of pastured poultry, Unless you also want to be in the processing business and do on-farm processing, which is a big step. It's a big piece, and it's more work than most people think. Um, but unless you want to do that, then the, your biggest hurdle is going to be finding a processor that you can use and then sell the birds. I found a guy here that does a good job, but I can't resell. He's not USDA certified, so... If I wanted to go in the business, I would have to process on farm. So, John, that's going to be a big challenge. Do you, do you, can you find a processor that will do that? Now, there's a loophole. 
It doesn't matter who processes on farm. It just matters that it's processed on farm. So if you could find a mobile processor, and some of, there are places where those exist. Ben uh, Falk up in uh, in uh, Vermont, when we I was at one of his PDCs, we did you know chicken processing, and he brought a guy in to do the class, and that's what he does for a living. He travels around and processes birds. Um, so that's something you can look at too. But that's just a hole you're going to have to fill in one way or another. Uh, next up, John Pugliano has a question this week. It's kind of interesting. Uh, it's from, I guess, me talking about this a few times, and it's caused some questions in the audience. And I actually got several versions of this. This is just the one that I picked. And it says, John, can you discuss capitalism and the breakdown that occurs in discussing it between the left and the right? What I mean is the left sees, tends to see capitalism as controlling the capital itself, i.e. fractional reserve, federal reserve controlling the money. The right sees it as free market business. Both sides seem to have valid points, but the word doesn't mean the same thing to them, so they can't seem to have a rational discussion about the issue. And this came in from Tim. John, what do you say on this complex issue? Hello, Tim. Thank you for your question. It's a really interesting question and gets into the heart and the philosophy of economic systems and how wealth is created. So I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to answer it a little bit differently than you asked, because you specifically refer to the difference in the way the left or the right would define capitalism. Now, the reason I'm going to answer your question differently than the way you ask it is because I don't believe the left or the right defines the word capitalism or free market accurately. I think both of these political ideologies define and use those words in a manner that's most self-serving to their individual ideologies. That's why you mentioned that both sides seem to have valid points because they're cherry-picking the concepts that can help them get what they want, but they ignore anything that's contradictory to limiting their access to power. So let's start off with defining capitalism. I think that when most people talk about capital, they think about money or the things that money can buy. And that's sort of partially right, but let me tell you how I define it, and I'll explain why. Let's compare and contrast capitalism with communism. Now, capitalism is an economic system that's based on private property ownership. Where communism is communal, it's based on property being owned by the community, or as we know how that always works out, and you know, it's the community's the state. So the state owns everything, individuals don't. Where in a capitalist system, Private property is owned by individuals or groups of individuals that form a corporation. Both systems at their core believe that wealth is created by the proper use of property, or in our example, capital. The only difference between the two systems is who should own that capital or who should own that property. Should it be the state or should it be an individual? Now, I think this is a really important point, and I think it's overlooked by a lot of people. Remember, both communists and capitalists understand that property and the employment of that property, or the other name for it being capital, is the source of wealth. The argument isn't about how wealth is created. The argument is just who should have ownership of it. Incidentally, I'll provide Jack with a link to one of my original podcasts where I review my 10 wealth-building principles. And wealth-building principle number three states that production is the source of wealth. I think understanding that is a key concept to how we as individuals can build our wealth, and I'd encourage you to listen to that episode. Now, let's break down the concept of capital and capitalism a little more. The term capital is actually a shorthand or an abbreviation for economic models. Economic systems at their fundamental basis are comprised of three components, and capital is kind of the shorthand abbreviation that we use to talk about all three of them. But really, there are three, and you should know them. 
So classic economics teaches us that there's land, there's labor, and there's capital. Let me quickly explain each of these for you. Think of a hunter-gatherer society. Theirs would be the most primitive of economic systems, and it consists of only harvesting things from the land or from nature, you know, without any type of human input. So land refers not only to the physical soil and the geography, but to anything that nature produces without inputs from human beings. So a hunter-gatherer community would go into a forest and they'd gather and harvest nuts and fruits from the trees and use their hands to dig up some roots. So that's the most primitive of economic systems. Now let's add human labor to that. A hunter-gatherer community that goes into the forest and they start pruning back the trees. Maybe they use some fire to burn the underbrush and clear the underbrush. And they use their hands to uh, move some earth, dig some ditches, maybe prop up some stones to change the contour of the land. Uh, you know, basically digging primitive swales and things to create a, a very crude and primitive irrigation system, but not really making any major modifications. Well, now that community has added labor to their economic system. The harvest of the fruits and the nuts and the roots and things like that will be more productive because of the labor that they added to the land. So now let's complete the system and add the third component, which is capital. Now, again, a lot of people think of capital meaning money or currency, but capital really refers to property. And what is property? Property is what human beings create from their mind and their imagination, and it comes in two forms. It's either an intellectual type property which you can define as a technique or, or a technology. I mean, that's where the word technology comes from. It's a technique. It's a particular process or a way of doing things. In our modern terms, we can think of it as a patent. That would be intellectual property. The other form of property is an actual physical property. And for our purposes, we'll call it a tool. A tool can be a computer, a computer program, or it can be something primitive like a hatchet or a tomahawk. So let's get back to our hunter-gatherer society. They're now employing capital in their economy. And so rather than just harvesting fruit from the food forest or using their manual labor to go in and break off branches and, you know, manually prune things, they start developing techniques and technologies and tools. So they take vines and fiber and they weave them into twine and cordage. And from that, they create nets that they can use for fishing and hunting and for collecting their fruit, baskets and things like that. They also take flint and form it into arrowheads, and they make spears and bows and arrows, and they take their time to educate their youth and their, their adults how to employ these new technologies, right? They, they create institutions of learning. They teach the young men how to throw spears and shoot arrows. They teach the women how to weave baskets and make pottery. Well, because they've created these techniques and these tools, they're employing capital. And they're putting that capital to work to make their individual labor more productive. And so consequently, they can build wealth faster by employing these tools of capital than they could just using land and labor. In a nutshell, that's how all economic systems work. So when the left and the right argue or have different opinions about capital or capitalism, it gets back to what I originally said. And in my opinion, they're not arguing about the source of the wealth or how to create wealth. They're just arguing about who should own it. And so that takes to the term you used, which was free market. I think free market is an oxymoron. There are no free markets. As long as you have human beings, they're going to create barriers to stifle their competition. Those barriers may be crony capitalists, or it may be in the form of states or governments or labor unions. But whatever it is, these organizations and institutions are always created to stifle competition. So rather than talk about free markets, I like to talk about restricted markets. 
because no market is free, but every market is restricted to some degree or another. So North Korea has a more restricted market than Cuba. Cuba has a more restricted market than the United States. The United States has a more restricted market than Hong Kong. It's all about the degree of the restriction. And what's that restriction consist of? It restricts individuals from owning capital. And what is capital? Capital is the land and the labor and the techniques and the tools that an individual used to create wealth. So getting back to the political ideologies of the left and the right, neither one are promoting freedom. Their goal is to restrict ownership. So the right wants to make marijuana illegal and the left wants to make guns illegal. Their ideologies are simply two different sides of the same coin, and the coin is tyranny or oppression. So let's sum this all up and take it from the theoretical to the practical. Why should an individual care about capital and restricted markets? It all comes down to wealth and freedom, because I believe that the only way an individual can truly be free is through the process of creating wealth. That's why we call it financial independence, because you're independent of the government. You're independent of an employer. The financially independent individual is able to sustain themselves with food and clothing and housing and all those consumer needs that we have because of their wealth. Now, their wealth may be in the form of gold or U.S. dollars or a small business that creates cash flow. The form of the wealth isn't important. What's important is what that wealth can purchase, and what it purchases is your freedom. And so if you're an independent-minded individual, then understanding what capital and capitalism is will allow you to pursue careers and activities that build your wealth by focusing on productive activity, creating products and services that people in your community want to buy. And so you use your land and your labor and your God-given intellect to create techniques and tools that make you more productive than your competition. And so you supply those products and services to your community at a profitable market price and high quality. That's a win-win. It's a win for you and it's a win for your community. And then when you think of restricted markets as an individual, you want to position yourself in the least restricted of markets. So that might be a certain city, a certain state, or a certain country that imposes less government regulation, less taxes. It can also mean a less regulated industry or business sector. So again, as an individual that's interested in building their wealth and their independence, you not only have to consider what products and services you want to create, but you have to gravitate towards geographic locations and business sectors and cultural institutions that offer less restricted markets. Well, Tim, thank you for your question. That's the way I look at it in terms of both the theoretical and the applied side of economics and markets. I'm also going to supply Jack with another link that will take you to a podcast that I recorded last year that talks about basic economic theory. So to learn more about my insights and commentary on the stock market and general wealth building principles, please check out the Wealthsteading podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I'd like to actually take a a bit of a stab at this one, more in the spirit of the way the question was asked. Um, First of all, let me just say, listening to John talk, what I hear – and He'll probably tell me no, but I used to tell other people that what I hear is a a a very passionate, uh, very professional uh, libertarian on his way to anarchism. That's that's what I hear. It's just on the anarchistic path. That's that's what I hear. Uh, and we'll talk at the events, John, and then we'll talk next year, and we can discuss how awesome anarchism is. And I'd love to actually get John on maybe to discuss this at a more philosophical level, because this is what John just did with the question. John took a philosophical question and made it practical. Why? 
That's what he does. He's an advisor, right? He Actually, he is an investor that does investment for others. But in this capacity, he's acting as an advisor. So what does this mean to you and how you're going to perform and build wealth, right? And he's hardwired that way. That's why he's good at what he does. So basically what John just said is, okay, you, you believe in freedom, but the truth is you exist in an economic prison. And so what you need to do is figure out how to create the most liberty for yourself within that prison, how to get into the wing of the prison that has the least restrictions, that gives you the most freedom, that allows you the most possession of private property, that allows you to leverage that private property for the best means. That's, that's what he told. That's a, a, a metaphorical way to look at that. And he's right. And this is why I have an anarchistic philosophy, but I have a practical, this is what you need to do to get the most you can out of the world we're in and create the most freedom and liberty for yourself advice stream. So I do the same thing. I'm just a little more clear when I divide it. So I want to take this philosophically a little bit. So, Everything John said about what real capital is is true. So we have, we have, we have, we have labor, we have property, and we have capital. But what the monetary system has done is given money the control of labor, of land, and of property, of tools, of things, of substances, so that. To make a market work or to make a, an economy work that's based on the actual resources within the economy, you have to employ labor and you have to maintain land and you have to develop capital or stuff. And whether that stuff is intellectual, social, experiential, or any of the eight forms of capital, you have to develop the capital. And what we've gone and done is we've allowed one form of that in the form of financial capital that at least used to be rooted in something like silver or gold, and now we've just created a way that it can be fabricated out of thin air. And that that capital, that big piece up top, and let's 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 replace the word capitalism with monetism, right? So we can create a barrier between the capital John described and what we're talking about with this question. We're talking about monetism. So two different forms of monetism, that money will be used to control the property and the labor and the land. And who gets to control that? And the rights version of monetism, monetary capitalism, let's call it that, that makes it more clear. Monetary capitalism is that private industry should control monetary capitalism. Private industry should have first go at using the monetary capital to control the other three things, the land, the labor, and the materials. Okay, And the, in, the, in the left's version, we can't trust industry with that type of control so that the state or the public, which the state never actually represents the public, but in the left's twisted mind it does, the state should control those things by control of the money. Money is actually the problem. But remember, we're in a monetary prison. So money is also the solution until humanity evolves. And since I don't think that's going to happen, since I don't anticipate even as an old man living in a stateless society that, that, that no longer actually sees the need to create money out of thin air to control these other things, then that's, that's the hand that I'm dealt 
So philosophically, here's how I see this question. Both sides are just like John said, evil. And the, the inherent problem is that when we look at something like land, if we look at land, the concept of private ownership of land goes back to like John Locke. Okay, And what John Locke said is the way you, you, you can kind of rationalize the ownership of land is, number one, have you taken too much? Is there some for others? Is there some for nature? Is there, you, know, you can't have it all gobbled up by one, one person or one component. And, and if you, 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 okay, well, we haven't taken it all. Number two, is the land maintained? Is it put into productive use or is it maintained as some sort of a natural thing? And, and are you the one maintaining it? with the, the third branch, which is your labor. And if, you, if those were the things that you were maintaining it with your labor and you weren't taking so much that it couldn't be controlled by others, then it made sense that that piece of property would be yours and under your control so that you would continue to do that. But it turns around to the, the, the invisible hand of the market next and says, well, but that money works kind of the, sort of the same way, so now we take money and use it to control the land, which means I'm controlling the land, the labor, and the stuff with money. And, and when you see the philosophy that way, you start to realize how much both sides are actually exactly the same. They're exactly the same. Because both sides have the intention... Now, I'm not talking about the individuals, the people that debate from both sides that really think they're doing the right thing. I'm talking about the people that actually end up winning in either situation. All of those people are saying is, I want it for me. I want it for me. Through the power of the state or through the power of monetism itself. And, and that's why when you have these debates about capitalism, the, 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 the middle-class, blue-collar guy from Kentucky can't have a conversation with the urban person from San Francisco. Because the urban person from San Francisco says capitalism is this evil corporate empire. And, and the blue-collar guy from Kentucky says capitalism is my daughter at the end of our driveway selling lemonade, and it's your government that's shutting her down, that's restricting her. Because the urban eye from San Francisco goes, I don't want that done. I don't have a problem with your daughter selling lemonade. I don't have a problem with you selling lemons. I'll buy them from you. But they can't have that conversation because of how muddy the water has become between the two worlds. And it does go down to monetary control. And what we actually have in most of the modern world today, the first world, is economic fascism where we have a quasi-governmental agency in the form of central banks controlling the monetism, controlling the money. And the money can be used to purchase and control and direct labor. The money can be used to manufacture, purchase, and control and, and, and direct capital, okay, stuff. And the money can be used to regulate, control, take possession of, and direct and manage land through the implementation of material and labor. And we don't have control. But because they built a system that allows them to control those three things with money, the more money we have, the more control we can buy back for ourselves. And this is the, this is the, this is the freedom, and this is the trap. This is the tunnel. And it's like the, the old Robert Frost poem, Two Roads Diverge in Yellow Wood. In the, in the wood, I took the one less traveled by, and that's made all the difference. Okay, you have to take the tunnel less traveled by. 
The tunnel everybody thinks of freedom is a big education and a big debt to go along with it and borrowing money for a house and borrowing money for a call and following the system's rules. Right, the, the, the rules the system has put in place for you to tell you how to be successful. And when you come out of that tunnel, you're just in a different part of the prison that's actually far more restrictive with far less freedom, though your cell's nicely decorated. The tunnel less traveled, right? The tunnel that you go through that's less traveled, the one John's talking about is, is being very selective if you're going to spend money on an education and make sure you are buying an education that produces income. Getting as much of that education paid for out of pocket as possible. Minimizing debt. Saving money. Deferred gratification. Building multiple streams of income for yourself. Build, that, that's the road that more people could take, but less people do take. This is the problem for the people taking the other tunnel. The tunnel more traveled by, it's a shrinking tunnel now. Through automation, the, the, the demand for labor is shrinking. Everywhere. From burger flippers to anesthesiologists to bricklayers. They're making robots now that do a better job laying bricks. And why are we even building houses out of bricks? We could be pouring houses from concrete and done with a house. That would, that would, that would be there for a thousand years. The, the truth is that the Romans built buildings that are more resilient and lasting than what we're building today. With our technology, we should be able to synthesize those two worlds together. But instead, we're in this world. This is what John's talking about, restricted markets, and this is where he's dead on. These restrictions are preventing the evolution of technology for the betterment of humanity. Does that sound ethereal or whatever? It's not. It's the truth. Everything that we want to do is being restricted because people are profiting by restricting it. If you wanted to build a system that innovated and advanced, you would put the profit in the innovation and the advancement. And you say, well, that's what John said, but that's what you innovate and you No, 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 no. When you really try to innovate and advance things, If you try to cure cancer, we got to push that back because we make a lot of money treating cancer. And if you don't think that's true, I'm sorry, do some basic research and you'll find that out. When, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy that's behind the Earthship concept wanted freedom to experiment with Earthship and say, look, look, look okay, instead of trying to do this, can you give us one place where you'll just leave us alone? And he was told flat out that there's things like, you know, the people that sell energy aren't real happy about this. So developing homes that will use less energy is what the government talks about. But they don't really want it because there's a tax on every kilowatt. And, and th there's a, 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 an employment sector in building houses with sticks and nails. Building a house that lasts for a thousand years. Start to think about what that means for our over... The economy has to evolve. into a like Something doesn't even look like either side's version of it. But we're not ready yet. So while we're in where we're at, instead of playing their game, you understand the rules of their game so that you can build your own game outside of their world. That's what John's saying. That's what I'm saying. So hopefully that kind of brings the philosophical side of it back. And I'd love to get John in on you. Just not even like an interview. Just He and I just throwing this stuff back at each other. Because I think that he's he, he and I can, can kind of sit at the same level, both philosophically and practically at the same time. And there's a lot of people that understand the philosophical side of this, but they don't understand the nut and bolt mechanics of where we're at. 
And there's a lot of people that understand the nut and bolts mechanics of where we're at, but they don't understand the reason that it's so limiting to our future potential. Those are my thoughts. Let's go ahead and take another one. This one actually on building construction for Ben Falk. And uh, Ben kind of struggled with this one, and I, I can see why. I don't know maybe if he fully got the... Uh, the question itself. But the question is, what factors would it depend on when deciding whether to finish the exterior of an outdoor structure using brick or clay or cob or lime or metal or stone or wood? Uh, for instance, I'm thinking cob would be inappropriate for an outdoor building in a high rainfall climate, metal inappropriate when you want thermal mass, brick if you wanted to train up vines to the wall, etc. David, so Ben, uh, take a shot at this one for us, and I'll come back with my thoughts on expanding on it. Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole System Design. A uh, question about um, what to finish the exterior of an outdoor structure, um, what factors it would depend on. I've read through this question a few times, and I'm pretty sure I really just don't have enough information to, to give you the kind of answer I think you're looking for, but hopefully it's potentially worthwhile to at least kind of discuss this for a moment. Um So you are mentioning brick, clay, cob, lime, metal, stone, or wood. Uh, but some of these are structure materials and some are finishes. Like lime is a finish you put onto something else, whereas cob is an actual structural material. Um, clay is a component of cob. Brick is a structural material, um, which also can be left as a final finish, whereas clay is a structural material which needs to be finished. Metal is usually a finishing material, not a structural material, although you can make buildings out of metal. Stone is, is both a structure and finish. So, um, and wood as well. So, you're, this is really comparing apples and oranges, so I can't really, um, I mean, I can list off all sorts of factors, um, that would guide one's choosing of these different materials, but it's not going to be much help to you because I don't know, A, what kind of building you're talking about. Are you, is this a home or is this an outbuilding? Is this a conditioned space or not? What climate are you in? Where are you in in the world? Is it not, not just what hardiness zone you're in, you know, in terms of how cold does it get in the winter, but, you know, how humid is it? Is it windy? Um, you know, is it, uh, is it dry throughout the year? Is it dry parts of the year and then wet in other parts of the year? What latitude is it? Does it affect sun angle? Many, many climatic factors, then many use factors, as I mentioned, like what kind of building it is, what size is it, how many people are living in it. Also, what kind of resources do you have on site, what materials, and what materials do you have locally, and do you have more time or money? Um, some materials are incredibly cheap, um, cost nothing, but they're going to cost you a fortune if you're paying other people to build with them, like cob or cordwood masonry, for instance, are good ways to spend a fortune if you're hiring people to, to work with those materials. But there are fantastic ways to save money if you're an owner-builder doing it yourself. Um, so those are some factors, um, of some of, ver of many, um, but I need a lot more information to start you know, being able to give you certain recommendations about different materials um, and, and what those recommendations depend upon. So, so good luck, and um, maybe we can um, um, specify this question a, a lot more to get at some, some real answers. Thanks a lot. I, I think Ben brings us some valid points, but I, I think that we had a miscommunication here a little bit with the question. I think the question was more not 
what should I finish the outdoor of a, of a structure with, but what are the considerations that I need to take into a point in a, in a, in a mind when making that decision, such as humidity and climate and solar exposures, et cetera. But I think that's a very difficult question to answer because it's kind of like, tell me, tell me how many shades of maroon there are. Uh, but my thoughts on that is, is the, the, the person asking the question really kind of answered a lot of their own question. I think that really what it comes down to is appropriate building technology. And the, the outside of the structure, as Ben said, we, we need to realize there is a structural and then there's an aesthetic. So brick can be both, but a lot of other things really aren't structural at all. They're just aesthetics. Um, Kind of from my last little soliloquy, though, what I want to expand on is I think that in many instances, we're not building homes out of most of what we should be doing today. That, that we could be building these, these structures uh, in ways that are far more efficient. And, and that doesn't mean making all of our, our structures underground either. That we, we could be building homes that do a much better job of heating and cooling themselves and require almost no maintenance whatsoever to the home's exterior. I, we, we really, why we live in a world today where, you know, uh, Sherman uh, Williams and, and, uh, and Glidden still make a fortune selling paint for people to paint the exterior of their homes doesn't really make a lot of sense. Fairly low-tech solutions actually eliminate that need. Uh, just different types of siding and things like that. Or roofing, while we're, while we're still using shingles, Uh, when we could be putting roofs on that are 100 or 200 year roofs with, without spending that much more money. And it comes down to capital. It comes down to money. It comes down to a society based on selling the cheapest solution, the most cost effective solution versus the most effective solution. And we're not going to solve that problem right away, but we can start thinking of ways to solve that problem. And the truth is we could do a lot of these things a lot better right away if we can find places without the restrictions. The the problem is the the further you move away from restriction, the harsher the environment that you're in. And, and if if you look around at land that's available, because land one of those main components that that John talked about, if you find a piece of land where you can pretty much do anything you want, it's probably dry, rocky, and alkaline. It's probably like where I live, but worse. And it's probably in the middle of nowhere. And there's still probably things that pe the Department of Sad will that making you sad will come in and tell you you're not allowed to do. And it's it's difficult to innovate at extreme levels in extreme environments. It's much easier to innovate in environments that are hospitable environments for human beings. You know, Ben and I had it for this is, this is a for instance. So Ben and I had a discussion about how dry summers are in Texas, and he says our summers are dry. Like I don't know if you've ever been to Texas, Ben, but uh, you don't. You, we're not using the same words. Our words don't mean the same thing. You mean dry. Temperatures in the 90s, maybe during the day. Temperatures at night that are plunging down into the 60s or 50s, right? And, and a dew drop every single night where things don't fully ever dry in that summer period because of the humidity. Now, what I'm talking about when I say hot and dry summer is, is, is periods of, of the same periods of no rain or longer. I'm talking about days with high temperatures in the hundreds. I'm talking about periods of time where it's 
98 degrees at midnight when the temperature's already plunged. And when you go outside in the early morning at dawn, there is no dew. Chris Prater was just, just down here, and he's touching the ground, and it's like dry, brittle at, at 6.30 in the morning. He goes, where's the dew? I'm like, there's no dew. This, now we've just, we've just turned a corner. We've turned the corner in September where now there's dew in the morning. And it's a very different experience just taking a walk now in the morning than in the afternoon. And these, 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 uh, these appropriate building technologies, um, we're being forced to develop them in the harshest, driest, rockiest conditions because that's where the restrictions are in place. And, and it would be nice if some state or county somewhere that's not like that would say, you know what? We're going to stop worrying about the fact that some people might come in here and build a house that we can't tax efficiently enough and, and see what innovation can really do. Because I'd love to see it. And I think exteriors of homes is just one place where we could really, really be innovating. Um, the geodesic dome structure is a perfect example of between regulation uh, and between finance. Again, capital controls. Try to get financing to buy a geodesic house. You can't, and why? Doesn't matter how great the house is. We can't do a comparable. Really, you can't find a four-bedroom, four thousand square foot house uh, with with you know that was built in the last ten years that sold in there. But yours is round. We were we were going to buy one. It was beautiful. It was an amazing house. Amazing price. The reason the price was amazing, no one could get financing on it. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. This question is uh, now for Chef Keith Snow. And uh, here's your, you're probably going to get hungry warning, uh, except to this week, maybe not so much. Uh, the question for Keith is, if you were building a house from the ground up, how would you design your optimum pantry for highest usability, functionality, and ease of use? Keith, what say you on that? Uh, it's good to get you into other realms of food preparation, not just how to cook and make us hungry. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. I wanted to answer Tyler's question about building a great pantry. Now, Tyler, um, very exciting dude that in about 12 to 18 months, you're going to be able to build the pantry of your dreams uh, with a pretty good budget, not not uh, unlimited, but a pretty good budget. Now, um, I got to tell you, from experience, I have um, I've built a custom house. Well, I didn't build it, but I had a, a custom house built. And the pantry was definitely high on my list because it was an uh it was a new farmhouse, so it was an old style house um, and it had a great pantry in it. but there were definitely some mistakes that I made and i'm going to go over a few of the mistakes before we get on to some of the other issues. Now, the pantry was twelve feet long, which was terrific, but it was only about three feet wide, and that sounds like there's a lot of space, three feet. But when you add shelves, and the shelves that I added were super heavy, what I did is I drilled into the studs with those vertical um, metal uh, brackets, and then I used the um, heavy-duty sort of wire shelving. And I think I got it at Lowe's or Home Depot. Wood would have been a lot cheaper, um, probably just as strong. So in the future, I would have probably built it out of um, wood, uh, good hardwood. But what I did was um, I made the shelves a little bit too deep. You don't want your shelves, in my opinion, more than a foot deep. And these um, metal things that I got were were deeper than that. Um, they were good and strong, but the problem was 
they were deep enough to where I only had about 24 inches maximum of space to turn around. And when you have as many shelves as we had, like when you need to, you know, squat down to get something from the bottom shelf, uh, depending upon, I'm not a very big dude, but I would still be bumping into the wall and two people couldn't be in there at once. You know, for me, I'm pretty claustrophobic. I don't like tight spaces. And when someone would come in and you'd have to kind of turn sideways, that just something I don't, I don't like. So what I do recommend is making it wider, at least 42 inches wide. Um, the other thing that I did is did wrong was I didn't take into account properly the different heights of things. Um, so where you don't want your shelves very deep because you don't want to stack stuff in front of other stuff that you can't easily see. So I would say, you know, if you, if you could get even 10 inches, um, 11 inches, depending upon what type of things you, you plan on storing, you just don't want anything super deep. Like we've had cabinets before in our pantry that were two feet deep. Now, unless you're just, you know, the biggest anal retentive possible and you have a, a, you know, an inventory list on the door. When you come home from the store and the kids want to eat and you're in a hurry, you're going to pack stuff in front of other stuff. And we would always see things lost. It's the same problem you get um, with a side-by-side refrigerator freezer. Now, I can't stand those things because those freezers, stuff just gets hidden in the back and you can't see what's back there. I mean, it's depth is not your friend in these cases. That's why a good stand-up freezer that's not too deep when you open it up, you've got all that um, storage that's not too deep on the doors helps you. And it's the same problem with chest freezers. Unless you're very, very organized, you're just going to leave stuff buried in the bottom. So keep your shelves somewhat narrow. Now, um, the other mistake that I made was I didn't have separate storage or enough storage for pots and pans. I tend to be very heavy in pots and pans being a chef and uh, as much video production as I've done. Um, so a lot of my cookware was taking up precious space for the food. So that was a problem. And the other thing that I did is I had 10-foot ceilings, which they're all wonderful, but um, it's hard to use really high ceilings in a pantry. Then you need a ladder and or a step stool and all that. Um, so there was definitely some mistakes made. Now, I think the biggest mistake was the width. Now, I would definitely, I would envision the perfect pantry as having shelves on both sides and at least 42 inches in the middle. And I think you, you're on the right track here. Um, now, as far as depth, uh, I would make sure the shelves, if you're going to be doing canning and all that, had enough depth to take a half-gallon um, canning jar. But I wouldn't go much taller than that. And then you also mention in here bulk commodity storage. Now, rice, beans, and pasta. That is great, but I feel you might be better off um, getting a room in the basement. Or I don't like the garage because it gets too hot. But maybe your house, uh, at least my perfect house, has a walkout basement, um, which tends to be very cool and during hot summer months. But in a walkout basement, if you have a little room off to the side where you can put shelves that's going to be you know bug free and rodent free um, this is the better place to store your, your your commodity stuff rice and beans things that are in mylar bags you know us prepper types tend to have five gallon buckets of stuff and those are things that you're not going to be really reaching into very often so having them take up valuable pantry space um, i don't think is a great idea and then um it could be the same issue for some of your appliances. Now, the, for instance, the Squeezo strainer, you know, when do you use that? 
honestly, you might use it for a couple of weeks during the harvest season. You may not be using it the rest of the year. So having that thing in your pantry might not be a good idea. Again, uh, a basement or another area um, might be better. Now, if you want every single thing to be in your pantry, you know, that's cool, too, if you've got enough room. Um, just keep this in mind because the space, you always, you're going to fill this thing up. I know that. Um, but having your other appliances, Vitamixes and food processors, um, again, measure these things. See how tall they are because if you don't have it tall enough for your Vitamix, then you've got to take the container off the base and then you're taking up two spaces. So these are all things to consider. Now, I, I know a lot of people that um, have put under the floor storage, which is really neat depending upon the type of structure you have. If you've got, you know, 12 inch joists in your floors and you've got a cool space below, you can, um, have it so you can store stuff between those joists and have sliding containers. And that is a really great place to put items like potatoes and onions and all that. But you did mention having a root cellar, which is ultimately something that I would really love to have. Now, keep in mind, if your house that you're going to build happens to be on a crawl space, you know, my um, my opinion of crawl spaces is that they can be a giant pain in the rump. Now, um, when you're building, you don't tend to think a lot about the crawl space. But I got to tell you, if you don't encapsulate your crawl space, you will have nothing but problems. And um, when we built our house, the builder had zero plan for the crawl space. Um, I hired somebody to put some um, plastic down. He didn't even have that in the budget, this knucklehead. But anyway, the guy that I hired was not an honest dude, and we had a, the house was like 75 feet long. So I could look underneath the crawl space and only see so far under there. And this guy, he, he was pretty shrewd, a pretty good criminal. He put the the plastic as far as the eye could see and as soon as you went under there and crawled to the end and you could start to see beyond that there was no plastic and uh even with the plastic with that much i mean people don't realize the ground emits a ton of humidity and moisture and once your uh what do you call that stuff your insulation starts getting wet and starts coming down you have a total mess on your hands so um i don't like crawl spaces i wouldn't i wouldn't build a house or buy a house with a crawl space again even if it's professionally encapsulated, it's just not a great space. But um, if you're going to consider in-the-floor storage, just uh, be very cognizant of what's going on under the house if it's a crawl space. This is where the walkout basement or regular basement can really be great. But I think you've got most of the things, you've, you've thought about most of the things here, which is great. And um, I mean, what do we store? Canning jars, lots of canned food dry food like pasta. I mean, our pantry, it's not big enough, the one we have currently. So um, a bigger one would be better. But I would sit down, Tyler, with an inventory list, and it seems like you've done that, and look at all the foods that you regularly consume and store, and then plus sort of prepper-type stuff, long-term stuff, all of these appliances. And I would sit down, and you know this, this is a good place to be anal. Sit down and measure all these things. How much width is it going to take? And then um, figure out the height of your ceilings and how much shelf space. And if you just go with a one-foot-wide shelf, you'll be able to determine the square footage of shelf space. The more, the better. And then also, um, if the ceiling's high enough, and maybe you can hang some pots and you can hang herbs and and onions and things like that from the from the ceiling, that might be um, might be good as well. So uh, I hope. My waxing on has helped somewhat, but um, definitely you're on the right track. And the 
biggest thing advice-wise I could give you for the pantry is turning on your brain. And Tyler, it looks like you've turned on your brain here, so I think you're going to get a great pantry. And keep me up to date. And if you need to email me with any more specific questions, Keith at HarvestEating.com, happy to help out. And uh, just a note to those of you that have emailed me, lots lots of TSPers email me with cooking questions. And um, right now my inbox is a little crowded, but I will be getting to all of you. So um, thanks so much. Um, really quickly, those of you that want to support the pasta sauce, if you go over to Amazon.com, I've built the coupon right into the listing. You buy five bags, and they give you one for free, and it's automatic through Amazon. I greatly appreciate everybody's support over there. Have a great weekend, everyone. Jack, thanks for what you do, man. Take care. Great advice from Chef Keith Snow, and I, I think it's one of the things that we don't think about enough when we, we do construct a home, and we get that opportunity. Uh, pantry is is the... Uh, means by which the entire flow of the kitchen, you know, f uh, works uh, around. And I know that cabinetry is a big part as well, not just in your pantry space, but in the kitchen itself. Uh, we have a very restricted, quite small kitchen that we just remodeled. And doing things like taking this little tiny thin space uh, between the the stove and the and the far wall, and putting in about 11-inch-wide, deep, sliding uh, drawers that allowed us to take all of the seasonings and things that I use when I'm cooking and put them there right next to the stove, uh, right next to a workspace that's next to the stove, and yet utilize that space and then get all that stuff out of the, the pantry area and then put bigger, bulkier items in the pantry, made the pantry more efficient. So things like that. Um, and, and eliminating, you know, here's another thing, guys. A lot of people, I think, have like, you know, you go in and you look at all their spices and seasonings and stuff, and they have a ton of stuff that never gets used. If you don't use it, get rid of it. Really, if you don't use it, get rid of it. And things that you only use small amounts of, you know, if you have certain things, like for certain recipes, you need a pinch of this or a dab of that or whatever, get a little bitty ones, and then just keep that off to the side. Um, another thing we did is try to standardize on sizes. So we took a lot of the stuff that we use regularly, and we went to just mason jars with a label on them. That lets us buy stuff in bulk, fill the jar, keep everything else in bigger jars, vacuum-sealed away in the darkness of the upstairs storage closet, and then just refill those. By having everything the same size, everything fits, and it's easy to adjust shelving and things like that when you have things of uniform size. That's why when you see stuff shipped, sometimes something is in a box a little bigger than they would need to, but all the boxes are square, so they fit in a truck or on a pallet. You got to think a little bit like that uh, in managing and running things. Next question we have is for expert council member Tim Glantz on uh, military cold weather gear from Farley. Tim, what can you tell us about military cold weather surplus gear and what's available currently? Hi, everybody. This is Tim Glantz with Old Grouch's Military Surplus with an answer for Farley on a question about the military extreme cold weather clothing system. Um, first off, there are actually three generations of the extreme cold weather clothing system. The first generation came about with the uh, advent of the military-issued Gore-Tex parka, and the entire system consisted of basically three pieces. It was the polypropylene thermal undershirts, the what we called the bear suit, which was a really heavy brown pile insulated suit, uh, where the pants were a heavy overall type construction and it was sized so funky that you could barely move in it and then the Gore-Tex outer shell. The Gen 2 moved up and all that really changed was there was an option of a lighter weight silk weight underwear or the heavier polypropylene and the heavy brown bear suit was replaced with a black Polartec fleece 
The jacket was a 300-weight Polar Tech, and the uh, uh, pants or overalls were actually a 200-weight Polar Tech. The, the black Polar Tech fleece, in my opinion, is the best version the military's had. Then the current issue is the Gen 3. The Gen 3 is made up of actually seven layers to make things even more complicated. Um, your level one, you'll see these often sold as L1, is a uh, lightweight uh, thermal undershirt and pants, uh, basically like a silk weight. Your level two uh, replaced the heavier polypropylene thermals with what they call a grid fleece. Uh, if you look at it, it almost looks like a waffle. Um, some people swear by it, say it's better than a polypro. I find it's not as warm for me. But it's one of those that, you know, your comfort is your comfort, so you have to try and, and make sure what you think you like better. The level three is the fleece jacket. They no longer have a fleece overall or pants because they found that uh, despite how well they worked, a lot of guys were not using them. And uh, they switched from the regular Polar Tech 300 to what they call a high loft, which actually has uh, basically longer fibers, um, I don't like it as well. I find it to not be as warm, especially when worn as an outer garment. Now, if you wear something over this high loft fleece, then it's pretty warm and it's a little lighter weight than the old Polar Tech 300. But I liked a lot of times to wear my Polar Tech as the outer layer if it wasn't rainy, and uh, it, the older one is much more uh, wind resistant. Then you have the level four, which is uh, a wind jacket. And it's basically just that. It's a very lightweight windbreaker. Uh, you've seen a few issued in ACU, but most of them out there in multicam. And it's a it's a it's a low volume shell, and it's a uh, it's breathable and it's water resistant. It is definitely not waterproof. Uh, then you've got what they call the soft shell, which is a level five. The soft shell is one of the best things they've come out with in this new one, and it's. A highly water-resistant material that's breathable. It's not as waterproof as Gore-Tex, but it's highly water-resistant. But it's much more flexible. Uh, it's quieter when you're moving. And uh, it breathes better than Gore-Tex. I know Gore-Tex breathes, but this breathes a lot better. And uh, it works very well for that. Then your new level six is the wet weather trousers and jacket. And those are the Gore-Tex. And unlike the previous generations of Gore-Tex where it was heavy and had a liner and some other stuff, this is a very lightweight Gore-Tex jacket and pants. Single layer, um, much lighter. And then there's the Level 7, which is the Extreme Cold Weather Parka and Trousers. And it is a very thick, insulated suit. Uh, you almost look like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man when you're wearing it. Uh, we always called them the happy suit because, you know, you put that on, you're nice and warm and happy. If you can imagine wrapping yourself up inside of a uh, a poncho liner that's three times as thick as it normally would be, that's about what wearing this is like. And it's actually uh, an insulation known as Primaloft, which is very big in the uh, the hunting, uh, or the outdoor gear market. It's one of the most uh, insulating materials by volume you can get. It works very well. As to what will work good in, in your particular case and in, you know, an area like Michigan, um, the beauty of this newer system with the seven layers is you can mix and match for whatever you need. I, I could see how in Michigan the L7 would be very nice with all that insulation for something like tree stand hunting where you're not going to be moving a lot. 
Um, I would probably be a big fan of the older style polypropylene thermals if I was going to be active because their moisture wicking abilities are, are to, to, in my experience, superior to the grid fleece and some of the others. Uh, but you really just have to try and mix and match. Right now, there are some killer deals on the Gen 2, the black Polar Tech fleece. The jackets are out there uh, to some degree, and there's, there's fairly good deals on them, but there are killer deals on the overalls. These are uh, American-made Polar, Polar Tech 200-weight uh, biv overalls with zippers that run up and down the side of each leg. And uh, most surplus dealers have got them right now brand new for under 10 bucks. I've got some on my website right now. I think I've got them at either five or seven bucks because uh, the government way overbought on them and dumped them on the market. Uh, bang for the buck for keeping warm. It's hard to beat those with a waterproof layer over them or a looser fitting set of coveralls over them. And uh, other than that, I would suggest just shop around, uh, you know, you're welcome to mail order from me, but on stuff like clothing, I really recommend if you can find a local shop selling it, try it on, see what works, and uh, you know if you're trying it on in his shop, buy it from him. Don't don't try it on his shop and then buy it from me because uh, you know you got to support your local guys too. So uh, I hope that helps you understand a little bit more about the three different generations of the, uh, the extreme cold weather clothing system the military has had, and then how all seven layers of the current Gen 3 work. Uh, and uh, if you have any questions, feel free to reach me there at oldgrouch.com. And thanks again, and thanks again, Jack. Good stuff from Tim, and uh, now it is time for our cleanup batter today on the expert council, Paul Wheaton. And Paul is going to once again give us kind of an update as to what's going on at Wheaton Labs and with his activities in the wilds of northwestern Montana. Paul, what's been going on up there this week? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton with Jocelyn Campbell from permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. See, <laughs> Good morning. I, see, I made sure to mention you this time. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm learning to be less rude, <laughs> sort of. Maybe not. <clears throat> okay, so um, we have our eighth ant. Um, and, and so once again, the, uh, the ant village stuff is all about people coming here and they rent a single acre through the end of 2016, and then they try to build a shelter to make it through a Montana winter and grow oodles of food. And if they participate in the Ant Village Challenge, which I think all of them intend to, then uh, one of them will be selected uh, to uh, basically get free rent for a year. Or uh, they can also opt out of that, or not free rent for a year, free rent for life, uh, or they can opt out of that for $10,000. So there's a $10,000 prize. Pretty sweet. Uh, Jim arrives today. I'm picking it up at the airport in a little bit. Um, and this is, I'm going to guess this is probably our last ant of the year. I mean, because it takes a little bit of time to be able to, you know, drop your logs, build your shelter, stuff like that. And uh, this is September. You can start to feel a little bit of chill. I mean, we haven't yeah. had any snow or frost or anything like that yet. Um, although many parts of Montana have. Yes. Uh, we've heard the stories, but uh, fortunately, you know, we're in a slightly warmer spot in Montana. Yeah, we have a visitor uh, who arrived last night who said his basil was already killed by the frost where he's at. Oh, we haven't had a killing frost yet. Um, I think in our, I think the ant that's currently in the lead would be Evan. He's been here the longest, mm-hmm. and and he has a structure. Uh, I've seen the roof is built. 
and it looks like he's using my roof design. Um, uh, the frames are the frame is all log, and the roof is log, and he's kind of got some cob between that, and um, I, so I think it's a, a Wafati-ish kind of a thing. But you know, I think one of the most important thing things are is that for the buildings that are being put together, it's a little bit like what Dick Prenicky did in that uh, that show that's all over PBS, um, Alone in the Wilderness. And we've got a podcast about Alone in the Wilderness because you know we have so much respect for Dick Prenicky. We we call it, oh, you're gonna are you gonna Prenicky that? Meaning, are you gonna build that without any power tools? But in that show, he basically builds his cabin in just a few weeks. And and we're learning that there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, you want to see the timers going? Yeah, the timer is going. <clears throat> and um, but most of the work we're learning that ninety percent or more of the work is gathering the materials. So getting yeah. your logs, you know, from the tree state to where it's limbed and barked and at your spot. But that's more than ninety percent of the work. So um, yeah, Josh. Josh told us the other night at dinner that it's cold in the mornings, and what he does to warm up is peel a log. <laughs> <laughs> Keep on peeling. So a lot of the guys, that's what they're doing. They're just getting a big stack of logs ready to go, and um, and so they're they're getting them all prepped, and then they'll do the big rush. Um, uh, it seems like there's a lot of truth to that for. All of the different things that we've built, and and we're trying to get better at uh, at that, at, at like get all the logs there first, uh, then build it. Um, all right, so let's see where are we at, I, and and I think Prenicky, when when you watch Alone in the Wilderness, you, it's he does mention that all the logs are already at the site, which he did the previous year, and he got all the all the logs there, and then he throws together that log cabin so damn fast, it's so impressive. Um. Let's see. Uh, we had a timber frame construction guy here, John, yeah. and uh, um, we and we got into a little bit of a discussion about uh, building with green logs. Now, my understanding has been, and John comes from a different school of thought. So let me tell you what I think, which is probably wrong because John has oodles more experience with this than I do. And that is that my understanding is that a log, a green log, will shrink lengthwise about three percent. And it will shrink thickness-wise about 7%. Mm. And now John's response was, is that he agrees, I mean, of course, it depends on all kinds of factors and stuff, but 7% is about right for coniferous wood, for the thickness shrinkage. But he says that in his designs, and he dominantly uses green wood, that um, and when he builds stuff, that he does not consider the shrinkage lengthwise at all. So he believes that it shrinks anywhere between 0%, like not at all, and insignificant percent. <laughs> like it's the shrinkage is so small that you won't be able to tell the difference at all. So it's possible that it's there, but it's like, you know, 0.1% or something like that. It's, it's incredibly tiny. Um, I, I think that was a, that was a powerful education for me. And, yeah. and so I'm going to be observant about that. I'm going to watch for it and see if I can notice anything. Well, and, and John is someone who I've been telling about our Wafatis for some time, but he was one of many people who have said, Oh my gosh, it's so much better to see these in person, despite 
videos, despite pictures, despite threads, despite articles and drawings and everything on the Internet, um, we've had quite a few people say that recently. Man, it makes such a big difference to see it in person. I don't know why. I, I, you would think people could transpose that or imagine that, but... I've sent him links, pictures. He's looked at that stuff, and we've we've sat down and discussed the designs of the Wolfati before. Um, and but to see it in person, he was he was far more impressed. I I think we should probably put up a YouTube video at some point of yeah. the insides of these and the outside. I mean, something that's kind of like a summary of of Wolfati stuff. Mm-hmm. Although, granted, we do not have one Wafati that is 100% complete right now. And speaking of which, we are currently shopping for a natural builder. It would be great yes. to get somebody who could show up like, oh, I don't know, today? <laughs> <laughs> and and wrap up Wafati uh-huh. uh, 0.7, which we now call Allerton Abbey. Yes. And um, basically, there's a straw bale wall that needs to be completed on the uphill side, and there's some cobbing that needs to be done. 0.7 means it's a beta version. We still don't have release 1.0 yet. Uh, so just had to add that in there. I think we might have some guys that are willing to live in it through the winter. Yeah. You know, but, and, and to do the big, the big test to see how well annualized thermal inertia works. Mm-hmm. But, um, we've got to finish that uphill wall. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, we. I thought we had a builder lined up, but he had to go and work on other things. So we're we're now. It's like, oh damn! I wonder if we can get somebody. So so Jack, maybe in all of your empire, you got somebody out there who can pop out here for a month. Or I would think that the whole job could be done in a week and a half, two weeks or so. But uh, that would it would be great to have it done before the Innovators event, which is the beginning of October. Um, we had a guy, a dowser here, Bill. Bill the Dowser. Mm. <laughs> uh, on Monday, uh, he picked two spots where he was certain that there would be water within 10 feet. Uh, my excavator can dig a 16-foot deep hole in about 20 minutes, and we got no love in either hole. Mm. Um, so he's going to come back. Uh, he's, we've got a north-facing slope, and he feels confident that he can uncover a couple of springs up there. Uh, so hopefully that'll be like in a week or so. Mm. Um, we've got oodles of game cams. Well, oodles with three, three game cams running. Uh, and, uh, we're coming back with lots of, lots of deer, like deer, 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 deer. In fact, whenever you're up there, I think almost every time I've been up to the lab, uh, I see deer. So we're, we're infested with deer. Um, the game cam has picked up, uh, two or three pictures of mountain lions. Maybe it's the same one. Oh, and we don't call them cougars anymore. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, because yeah, that means something else now. Mm. Uh, and, and I kind of wonder if the uh, Washington State University Cougars are going to have to have a new logo made. You know, <laughs> like rather than that old mountain lion logo they used to use, it'll have to be some sort of like 40-year-old woman. Um, hey, baby. Something like that. But uh, all right, bear. We got a. I mean, we've seen bear. I, the first week I black was bear. here. Yeah, black bear. Uh, there hasn't been a grizzly bear sighted around here for 20 years. But black bear, moose, coyote, uh, wild turkey. Oh, we're infested with wild turkey. Uh, somebody was out in that field near the house hunting uh, turkey oh. yesterday. Hmm. Um, and several elk. Um, okay. And I think the, the thing to wrap up with is uh, we've been getting a lot of big daikon radishes because daikon radishes are such a great permaculture plant. Um, yeah. And uh, they're a great one to forget even if you just leave them there. Ah, whatever, daikon radishes. Yeah. We we like the radish part. We like the greens. 
We like the seed pods. Um, we use those a lot. They're awesome. And we've been doing a lot with fermented foods. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think we're out of time. All right. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Real quick before I close up, let me say something about the radishes uh, that they were talking about there at the end. The, the pods are amazing. I'm not a big radish eater, but the seed pods, and I don't care if it's daikon, I don't care if it's like, you know, black Spanish radish or whatever. I, I, I am now the kind of person, I will grow them for the seed pods. And fermented foods, radish seed pods. Note to self, get that done. So I'm going to be planting a bunch of daikon uh, very soon because we're heading into our winter, and this is when we, you know, plant those as a, as basically not really a cover crop, more as a, a, uh, an improvement of the land crop. They do a lot of good things for us. So I'm going to close up today, as I've been doing, with a different song. Uh, today's song is uh, 100 Years by Five for Fighting. I think this is a great song. It puts a lot of things in perspective. It talks about the human life and how short it really is, and it talks about it from the pro prospect of living to be 100. You only get 100 years, and, and most of us don't. Uh, the fastest growing segment in society today is actually centurions. We are, we are, we're producing more hundred year old people than ever before because we're good at keeping people alive, but we're not necessarily good at making sure they have a good quality of life from the point that are, you know, 80 on necessarily, um, with chronic diseases and what have you. But we are keeping people alive. And if we can, you know, marry health to that, maybe we can all have a hundred years. But in the song, a hundred years goes really fast. And, You might have noticed the distinctive lack of the discussion that every news outlet is having today, the anniversary of September 11th. And I, I saved it for the end. And as usual, I, I have a different take on it for you than everybody else. Uh, this is when the news agencies lather up things and, and, and talk about tributes and all as though that, you know, it's the only time that a lot of people died in the history of the world, or it's worse because there were Americans that died. We, we, we've had Americans die in, in greater numbers in wars and, and other things at other times. And I, I don't mean to put down the loss of life on September 11th, but I, I, I want to kind of take a different perspective of it. Um, no matter what you think about how the events transpired or why the events transpired, Whether the official story is 100% accurate or only partially accurate or a complete lie. None of those things matter right now today for what I'm telling you. In its aftermath, the September 11th terrorist attacks were used to fire up the American people's will to go to war with other countries. And to flat out use military aggression on, on some people and some nations that had nothing at all to do with September 11th. In, in no way, shape, or form did Iraq have anything to do whatsoever with September 11th. And you can believe George Bush when he says the world is a better place without Saddam Hussein. It, it probably is, but that doesn't mean that Iraq's a better place, and it may be. I don't really know. I haven't been there recently. But in, in the end, what the result of September 11th was at first was a, a, a unity of this nation, something must be done, and then once again straight into the dichotomy and a division. And it's because the only way that the media and the people in power and even alternative media have generally looked at September 11th as either it was a reason for us to, to, to go out and be aggressive or it was an excuse for us to go out and be aggressive. And to me, as an individual, there are global things that happen and national things that happen that are beyond my control. 
if you go through the five stages of grief, eventually you get to acceptance. And, and most people haven't gotten there yet and understand that like, what you think or what you say or what you do isn't really going to change what this country does. The, the mass of the public belief in the propaganda of the day and the, the desires of the people in power are going to make that decision. We are left with determining for ourselves how we're going to live our individual lives. So I won't mislead you guys. On September 11th, 2001, I was like most Americans. I was angry, I was pissed, I was hurt, and I wanted revenge for the people that were dying. And I wanted it swift and as, as fast as possible. I did not have a cool head. I was not able to say, hey, we need to think a little bit more methodically about this. And as a former soldier and as someone that was still vested into the dichotomy myself, I was like most Americans, easily led. And when people, when people would make any kind of statement about, hey, we need to think, you know, hey, you're a commie or whatever, I was me. But there was also a corner that had already started to turn for me at that point. And I had gotten to the point where after years of traveling, I didn't want to be away from my family anymore. Uh, the company I worked for had been bought by another company, and I knew things were going to go downhill from there, that, that I really didn't want to be there. And I just moved my family to Pennsylvania from Texas um, to, to take a job with a company that didn't exist anymore. And I, I came home, and one of the very first things that we did after that and I mean in our home, is my son and I built a fire pit in the backyard. Actually, the side yard. And we started having neighbors over. And I took a shift from being so concerned with my job. And not that I wasn't still concerned with it, not that I didn't work hard, but I, I started to shift more into what what we need to do right here in, in, in our own little piece of dirt. And I put a garden in. And I began a walk back to the boy I was versus the man I'd become. I began to go back to hunting and fishing, and it really is the, the day that I began my walk toward what would become the Survival Podcast. And I think that we have choices in our lives. We, 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 we come to that path in the woods, and we have the, the choice to travel to the left or to the right, or to the east or to the west, or to the, you know, the north or the south or, or whatever when we get to that fork in the road. And that most of us, we choose the path that everybody else does for ourselves. And even when we think we've chosen a different path because, you know, I'm on the left or I'm on the right, no, that, that path is really wide. And, and all you've done is you've walked on the right side or the left side of the path, but you're going to the same place, a place of control. And a place of being led and a base, place of being told what to think and a place of being told how to think and a place where you are told that the person on the other side of that path is your enemy. And, and, and every time that the two of you try to speak to each other, the people in power do something to drive a wedge right down the middle of that path. There, there can be no rational conversations between left and right or rich or poor or old and young or anything else on that path because it is specifically designed for control. But it's nice and wide and it's well-traveled and lots of other people are going there, so it seems like you should too. September 11th was one of those days when it was made clear to people that there's always, always a choice of taking the less traveled path. That that's not a point that you actually come to metaphorically in the woods at times, but it's always there. 
and it's stepping off the path into the wilderness, onto the less traveled path, and starting to say, I'll think for myself. I won't just think about the answers for myself. I'll ask my own damn questions, thank you. Because that's the primary means of control in our society today. It's not just that they give you an answer. It's they tell you the question that you're supposed to be concerned with. They frame it so there can only be two answers. Well, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, there's a hell of a lot more than two answers to any complex issue. But if you frame the question, you control the outcome to an A and B, a true and a false, a left and a right, a Coke and a Pepsi, a gold or a silver. And, and it, there's just no place left in that world for me. Now, it wasn't like on that day I flipped a switch. I started veering from that path into the less traveled path. And what I would like to do today is to invite you to join me there if you're not already on it. To think back to how much hurt and pain there was on this day. And to realize that it, its message really isn't about good and evil. It's about the fact that any one of us can be taken from this world that we know physically in a millisecond on any day. We, we only get so much time. And when you're an old man, you're not going to think, you know, back when I was 37 years old, I'm really got, glad I got that proposal done and closed that deal. You're not. You're not. All of the shit that you think is so important, that the TV says is important, that society says is important, your parents say is important, your grandparents say, most of that is bullshit. It's not that important. There's, there's a place for paying the bills. There's a place for making sure you get a job done. There's a place for pride in your work. I get all that. But in the end, the level of importance we place on pleasing others and doing what is expected of us versus pleasing ourselves and doing that which we know is most beneficial to ourselves and others is ridiculous how much we weight it to the wrong path, the wrong side. To, to, to watch a tragedy like the September 11th tragedy, should fill you with an absolute desire to live your life to the fullest. Instead of sitting around mourning those who were lost so many years ago, you should be asking yourself, what exactly have I done with all the days after that day that were given to me as a gift to further my own freedom my own liberty, and my own independence so that I can be an example to others? What, what have I done to increase my, my self-worth so that I can be an example to others? What have I done to help other people rise up and in, improve their own self-worth so that they can be an example to others? How, how have I wisely invested or squandered every single day since that day when it wasn't me that went out in a blink of an eye. Do I make a difference? And the answer is, you do. But are you making the difference you want to make? Because you only get so many years to live. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. 
Hundred years to live. 